Hello, and welcome to Kickout 299. I'm Rachel, who has recently discovered a deep, undying love of Suwama. And I'm Alicia. And today we are bringing you the second episode in our series on factions in Pro Resu. Today, we will be looking into All Japan Pro Wrestling, going through some of its faction history, looking through some booking patterns, and discussing the highs and lows of the promotion. After, we have an excellent interview with both Jesse of Royal Road 72, and also the host of Talking Triple Crown, and Dr. Jonathan Foy, author of Gambaru, as they take us through the history of their favorite factions in All Japan. So, without further ado, let's get started. It's important to note that we are simply unable to cover all of the factions in All Japan's history, but we wanted to give you a high-level overview of the units that give the best snapshot of the culture around factions in the promotion and how they've been used over the years. We will begin with Revolution, which isn't the earliest example of a faction in All Japan, but certainly one of the most significant ones, and where we saw a notable shift in how factions were presented and used to tell stories in All Japan. Now, by 1987, All Japan Pro Wrestling was following the format of Gaijin Wrestler versus Japanese Wrestler, but Genichiro Tenryu wanted to revitalize All Japan and dissolve his tag team with Jumbo Saruta, Kakuryu Konbi, to begin a heated rivalry with him. Tenryu appealed to Giant Baba and asked to form a tag team with Ashura Hara, which was granted after Baba watched a particularly hard-fought match between Tenryu and Tiger Mask 2, aka Mitsuharu Misawa, the fifth of Tiger Mask's seven trials. There was technically eight matches. The Great Kabukis was considered the start, but Yoshiaki Yatsu was, was counted as the first trial and so on and so forth. Now, Tenryu and Hara's tag was called Ryu Haragun, and their fierce matches against Jumbo and Hiroshi Wajima earned a lot of support from fans. Tenryu and Hara's ethos was not to cut corners, even in shows that took place in rural areas, and this earned them a very fast and dedicated following. Tenryu and Hara then formed Tenryu Alliance by adding Fuyuki Samson, Toshiaki Kawada, and Yoshinari Ogawa to their ranks. Kawada and Ogawa were both serving as valets to Tenryu at the time. Now, Samson and Kawada would form the tag team Footloose, while Ogawa competed for the world junior title. The media began calling the faction's actions in the ring the Tenryu Revolution. Tenryu also had lyrics from the Beatles song Revolution printed on the back of one of his ring jackets, hence the start of calling the faction Revolution. In 1987, Tenryu and Hara won the PWF World Tag Team Championships, and Tenryu beat Jumbo Saruta twice in singles matches. Their rivalry was a box office smash for All Japan Pro Wrestling. In 1988, All Japan continued to put the spotlight on Revolution, with Tenryu winning a unification match against Stan Hansen to become the PWF Heavyweight Champion and NWA United National Champion. Footloose won the Asia Tag Team Championships the same night. Tenryu, as the PWF Heavyweight NWA United National Champion, had a unification match with NWA International Heavyweight Champion Bruiser Brody that ended in a double countout. The belts did not exchange hands that night, but this is notable in that all three titles are eventually unified to form what we know today as the Triple Crown Championship. Also in 1988, Tenryu and Hara beat Saruta and Yoshiaki Yatsu, the Olympics, to become the World Tag Team Champions. The next night, the Olympics won the belts back, so a bit of strange booking for you there. That's, yeah. <laughs> 
pretty, pretty on par. I think I compared it to uh, Noah's tag team booking at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly that. A little similar. Yeah. <laughs> so you also have Tatsumi Kitahara debuted for All Japan and joined Revolution before going on excursion and training with Stampede Wrestling. In November 1988, Giant Baba announced that Hara had been fired from All Japan Pro Wrestling for his gambling debts. And Giant Baba had actually paid off um, some of Hara's debts, but collectors kept coming. So Giant Baba had to um, let him go from the company and, and gambling is illegal in Japan. Yeah. So there's a lot of problems there. So Kawada wound up joining Tenryu for that year's World's Strongest Tag Determination League, which we also know as Real World Tag League. They finished fourth that year. On June 5th, 1989, Footloose would lose the All-Asia Tag Team belts, and that was in their second reign but to the Can-Am Express, but Tenryu would defeat Jumbo Suruda to become Triple Crown Champion. This match was hailed as Match of the Year by many Japanese publications and is one of the most important matches to watch from their rivalry. Tenryu lost the Triple Crown to Jumbo Suruda after 128 days. Also in 1989, Stan Hansen would join Tenryu in a tag, though he was not a regular member of Revolution, and they would become World Tag Team Champions for 11 days. They go on to lose the title to the Miracle Violence Connection, Dr. Death Steve Williams and Terry Gordy. In Canada, Tatsumi Kitahara and New Japan's Kensuke Sasaki would team up and win the Stampede Wrestling International Tag Team Championship. They would hold the titles for a month before dropping it to the Blackhearts. Better than 11 days. Better than 11 days. That's right. We can give them that. In 1990, this would bring about the end of revolution in All Japan Pro Wrestling. In April of that year, Tenryu departed from All Japan to form Super World of Sports, which is also known as SWS, taking other locker room talent with him. His departure was shocking for the promotion, the press, and fans. Giant Baba famously swore that Tenryu would never return to All Japan. Now, if you've read Gambaru by Jonathan Foy, you'll know that Tenryu left because he felt like he was not appreciated or becoming the star he wanted to be. And Giant Baba was initially okay with Tenryu leaving. He was not okay, however, with Tenryu's taking Tenryu taking, rather, locker room talent with him on the way out, which caused that bit of friction and Baba's famous declaration that he would never return to all Japan. But I do recommend um, reading Gambaru if you would like to hear how that ends up turning out many years later. (laughs) So anyway, Revolution would be reformed in SWS with Samson Fuyuki, Tatsumi, later Koki Kitahara, and Ashurahara. When SWS shut down in 1992, Tenryu and company formed War, or also known as Wrestling and Romance. So to give you just a snapshot of the different achievements of Revolution while they were in All Japan Pro Wrestling, you have Tenryu when he won the Triple Crown Heavyweight Championship from Saruda, the PWF Heavyweight Championship that's Tenryu again, uh, the United uh, National Heavyweight Championship from Tenryu. They've got the World Tag Team Championships, the PWF World Tag Team Championships. The All-Asia Tag Team Championships were won by Kawada and, and Fuyuki three times between 1988 and 1989. So, so you know, a fairly well-decorated faction. They won some awards as well in between 87 and 89 as well. Now, we are actually going to make a YouTube playlist of as many matches as we possibly can from this episode, and we'll post the link on our Twitter, but I'll reference matches you can check out as we go, and if you are looking into some Revolution matches, I can recommend 
Tenryu and Hara versus Jumbo Saruta and the Great Kabuki from May 24th, 1988. You can check out Jumbo Saruta versus Genichiro Tenryu for that Triple Crown Championship from June 5th, 1989. That's pivotal, crucial watching. You also have Tenryu and Kawada versus the Olympics. Again, that's Saruta and Yoshiaki Yatsu from August 29th in 1989. And then if you really want a great multi-man tag match, Jumbo Saruta, Yoshiaki Yatsu, Masanobu Fuji, versus Genichiri Tenryu, Samson Fuyuki, and Toshiaki Kawada from January 28th, 1989. And you can find them all on YouTube. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out the most to me uh, with Revolution is definitely the jackets. <laughs> when we were talking about those, they're absolutely stunning jackets. And that's one thing I really, really associate with, especially just the beautiful font. Like it, it really sticks out in my head. And they were pretty big faction to that end like you said the uh, feud sort of lit the promotion on fire in a lot of ways the crowd was really behind that so those images become very lasting and very stunning and I'm really fond of it for that reason yeah I think Tenryu in the revolution jacket and and really Hara to in that Mm -hmm. in that same way those are some of the most prominent images that you can you can see from that era of all Japan Pro Wrestling. I know when I was oh, getting into in that era of All Japan Pro Wrestling, like that's what really like drew me in was was pictures of Tenryu. <laughs> um, even before <laughs> anyone else, even before watching like Saruta matches, I had to figure out who Genichiro Tenryu was because he looked incredible. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like everyone looks really cool from that era. Like the Saruta in his Olympics jacket is really cool too. So you do have these different teams and factions that just have these like classic looks to them. And it really does define the era. Oh, for sure. And I love it. And we need to bring it back. That's the really, the big takeaway here is that we need to bring back that look. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Yusuke Okada is doing his best, but he can't do it alone. No, (laughs) we need a couple more of them in it. The end of revolution and Tenryu's departure from all Japan brings us sort of perfectly into the next faction that we're going to talk about. And that is Super Generation Army. Before I really get into all of the information that I want to tell you about Super Generation Army, I do want to mention that Mitsuharu Misawa as Tiger Mask 2 and Akira Tawe we're in a unit called Kekigun, which means Rising Army. This faction is not as well known as Super Generation Army, and it didn't last very long. They lasted for about a year, from about 1988 to 1989, but they were a mid-card predecessor to what became the Super Generation Army. Other members besides Misawa and Tawe included Shinji Nakano, Shunji Takano, and Isao Takagi. Baba just felt like they weren't very successful. They weren't really working out. So he sort of let this unit kind of come to an end. But then through that, we ended up with Super Generation Army. Now, to return to Tenryu for a moment, his departure from All Japan along with other members of the roster left Giant Baba in need of new stars. He turns to four in particular, Mitsuharu Misawa, Toshiaki Kawada, Akira Tawe, and Kenta Kobashi. In order to set the stage for what Super Generation Army and its rival faction Sarutagun would go on to become and represent, it is important to explain some of the storylines happening at the start of what we know as the King's Road era of All Japan. In a tag match with Kawada against Samson Fuyuki and Yoshiaki Yatsu on May 14, 1990, Misawa demanded to be unmasked by Kawada and he threw his mask out of the ring. After that, he no longer wrestled as Tiger Mask 2, but as Mitsuharu Misawa. 
On May 26, 1990, Misawa was joined by Kobashi and Tawe in a six-man tag against Jumbo Saruta, Masanobu Fuchi, and the Great Kabuki. In this match, you see Jumbo bullying Misawa and his tag partners, and this match absolutely serves as a predecessor to some of the even more outstanding six-man tags that this era of All Japan would become so well-known for. However, what makes this match significant in the story that would begin to play out between what we know as Super Generation Army and Saruta Goon is that Misawa lands an explosive elbow to Jumbo in the corner a little less than 10 minutes or so into the match. Jumbo sells this like Misawa has killed him. He lays on the outside selling for a long time to the point where the great Kabuki actually goes down from the ring to check on him. And the crowd in Korokin is silent and genuinely worried about their ace. And you do need to listen to Joseph Montesilo talk about this moment on episode three yes. of his series, Walking the King's Road, which I highly recommend the series if you're looking to understand the storylines and pivotal matches that make up King's Road. As he states with perfect dramatic flair, Misawa's elbow is God. When Jumbo recovers, he and Misawa brawl in the ring. Misawa goes on to win the match for his team with a pin over Fuchi. And the elbow to Saruta can be viewed as Misawa's warning to Jumbo and his generation. Misawa has arrived. The next match is set. Jumbo Saruta versus Mitsuharu Misawa on June 8th, 1990. The crowd in the Nippon Budokan is hot for Misawa and have been chanting his name before the show even began. What follows is an outstanding back and forth match between the two, with both showing off the very best of their arsenals. Misawa wins this match with a flash pinfall that signals the start of a new era in all Japan. However, the win was not decisive, and a rematch was set between the two on September 1st, 1990. The September singles match is particularly brutal, with Jumbo firing back against Misawa to drive home the point that he is not going to give up his spot in the company so easily. Misawa loses this match. This leads us back to Super Generation Army, which formed around Misawa effectively after his win against Jumbo in June. The other founding members, like I mentioned before, included Toshiaki Kawada, who did start wearing the black and yellow gear that he became synonymous with in 1990, which was a real departure from some of his more colorful tights when he was when, when he was uh, tagging in Footloose, and certainly a nod to his mentor, Genichiro Tenryu. You also have Akira Tawe and Kenta Kobashi. They would also be joined by Tsuyoshi Kikuchi and later down the line by July of 1993, Jun Akiyama. Not long after Super Generation Army forms, Akira Tawe betrayed the group and defected to Sarutagun. And we will talk about the significance of this betrayal and the rivalries it creates in its wake momentarily when we get into some details around Sarutagun. Now, Super Generation Army goes on to achieve some critical accolades throughout the group's history, and they last from about 1990 to 1998. And we witness the start of important relationships and dynamics between the members. Misawa and Kawada won Real World Tag League in 92. Misawa and Kobashi won Real World Tag League in 93, 94, and 95. Misawa and Kawada would become World Tag Team Champions twice. Misawa and Kobashi would also become World Tag, Tag Team Champions twice. And Misawa would win the belt of Akiyama once. While a definitive win against Jumbo would ultimately elude him, Misawa won the Triple Crown for the first time against Dan Hansen on August 22, 1992. This was a major victory not only for Misawa, but for Super Generation Army continuing to fight against the older generation in all Japan. Misawa held the Triple Crown for 705 days in his first reign. 
Kobashi and Kikuchi hold the all Asia tag titles for 373 days starting in 92, and Kobashi becomes the Triple Crown champion for the first time in 96 while still affiliated with Super Generation Army. Kawada would go on to leave Super Generation Army in 93 and form the Holy Demon Army with Akira Tawe. As we've touched on, a program between perennial All Japan ace Jumbo Saruta and Mizuharu Misawa became important for Giant Baba's booking going into the 90s. With Misawa's star on the rise, Saruta would eventually need to put over Misawa as the next ace of the company. However, Jumbo wasn't prepared to hand over his crown to Misawa just yet and enlisted the help of several wrestlers to quell the rebellion from the next generation of All Japan stars, which included people like Masanobu Fuchi and Akira Tawe. Yoshiaki Yatsu, Mighty Inoue and Yoshinori Argawa, but also joined Sarutagun at points. Akiyama was originally included in Sarutagun as well, and he also had his seven trial series while affiliated with the group. Sarutagun vs. Super Generation Army became the hottest program in All Japan for a solid two years or so. All Japan enjoyed a lot of financial success and sold out shows during this time period and even beyond that. In 1990, the Triple Crown Championship actually took a backseat to the program between Sarutagun and Super Generation Army. While the belt was traded back and forth between Gaijin like Terry Gordy and Stan Hansen, the battle waged on between the factions, which stole the show, so to speak. This is also because Giant Baba was reluctant to give away a title match between Jumbo Saruta and Misawa too quickly, which he viewed as the match with the most payoff for the promotion. Sarutagun transformed Jumbo Saruta from beloved babyface ace to a ruthless veteran hell-bent on keeping his spot in the company from the up-and-coming Misawa, but also Kawada and Kobashi, who are making names for themselves in Misawa's wake. Fuchi also played a wily, slimy, sort of villainous veteran in these matchups, and Tawe joining Sarutagun was a major betrayal at the start of Super Generation Army, and really gave Tawe the opportunity to be seen as someone more than just fourth best in his former faction. In Sarutagun, he becomes the group's second, and the fallout of his betrayal instigates rivalries between Misawa, Kawada, and Kobashi that play out in incredible tag and singles matches for years to come. During his time in Sarutagun as well, Tawe tagged with Jumbo, and they became world tag champions in 1992. Oh, wow. Jumbo Saruta won the Triple Crown for the third and final time in 1991 and held the belt for 374 days. Misawa and Jumbo would have their rubber match during this reign, with Saruta prevailing and going over Misawa once again. Unfortunately, a resolution to Jumbo and Misawa's feud would evade them. In the summer of 1992, Jumbo Saruta was diagnosed with hepatitis B. The effects on his health were significant and kept him out of wrestling for a year. When he returned in 1993, he wrestled exclusively in six-man tags and comedy matches with people like Giant Baba until his retirement from wrestling in early 1999. There is so much more to be said about Jumbo Saruta's life and career, but we're going to save that for the next episode, episode 10 of Kickout, where we will go more into detail on those aspects of his life and career. With Jumbo unable to compete, Tawe became the leader of Sarutagun, but without the ace and Tawe not quite prepared to fill the void that Jumbo left behind, Sarutagun would begin to dissolve. Misawa needed a new force to struggle against, so Baba would go on to pair Tawe and Kawada together. The two would form the Holy Demon Army and dominate the tag scene from their inception in 1993 until Tawe left with Misawa to form Noah in 2000. So, 
The war between Super Generation Army and Sarutagoon is a classic story of the struggle between generations. The conflict between the factions launched the careers of who we know now as the Four Pillars and became a launch pad for rivalries, partnerships, and incredible storytelling that would go on to define a decade of All Japan Pro Wrestling. I can give you so many matches to watch from this era, as so many other people can as well, and we'll include some in that playlist. Just to give you two off the bat, please look at Mitsuharu Misawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and Kento Kobashi versus Jumbo Saruda, Akira Tawe, and Masanobu Fuchi from April 20th, 1991. This is widely considered the greatest six-man tag in wrestling, but also one of the greatest wrestling matches ever, period. You can also look up, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I watched it, what, a month ago with you? Yes. (laughs) Oh, it was so good. Saved it for the right night. It was, oh, it was good. It's a treat. You can also look up Mitsuharu Misawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and Kento Kobashi versus Jumbo Saruda, Masanobu Fuchi, and Akira Tawe from October 19th, 1990. Please also don't sleep on Tsuyoshi Kakuchi and Kento Kobashi's tag run as Super Generation Army. Kakuchi was also great in multi-mans of this era. Um, Jumbo Saruda used to just beat the shit out of him. And he is truly an unsung hero of 90s All Japan. One thing I thought was really interesting when you're talking about this was uh, how Baba was saving the booking between um, Jumbo and Masawa to sort of get a bigger payoff. I thought that was really, really cool and really fascinating. And it's just really cool how that faction warfare was so popular and had so much heat behind it. Would you say that this was the building blocks for what we see today in all Japan factions, or would you say that we've departed from that? We might get that answer as we go through the faction history, but I would like to get some of your thoughts now. (laughs) I, I don't think that this era of wrestling can be um, replicated really. I mean, giant Baba's booking was, some of the most um, succinct booking that's ever been done in wrestling. I just, I don't see much of it in the modern booking and the way that All Japan does their storylines and especially with the way that they use their factions. I think the only time I can really compare it to, and I'm just going to acknowledge that I have not seen all of like the middle years of All Japan. I've not seen all of that stuff, so I can't speak for all of it. But the only thing I find it very comparable to is when burning the third incarnation of burning which we're going to talk about a lot in this episode when the third incarnation of burning rolls in to all japan and you have burning versus all japan that's the only time that i can like the storylines are so different because ultimately burning versus all japan is outsiders versus the promotion right Mm -hmm. but in terms of the heat and in terms of like the really effective faction booking that's the only thing i can compare it to personally i just don't see this replicated at any other time in the way that all Japan typically uses its factions. Okay. That is really interesting. That's something definitely to think about as we go through and speaking of burning, not the third incarnation, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the first incarnation of burning and how we get there. So during Kenta Kobashi's second reign as triple crown champion in August of 1998, his tag team with Johnny Ace of all people came to an end, thus dissolving their unit Get, which stood for Global Energetic Tough. <laughs> and that consisted of Kobashi, Johnny Ace, and the Patriot. They had been active for roughly about a year before that um, unit came to an end. But after the dissolution of Get, Kobashi goes on to form Burning with June Akiyama. 
Anyone familiar with Kobashi is aware of Burning because the name became a brand and synonymous with him throughout his career and beyond, as well as Akiyama. By the fall of 1998, Akiyama and Kobashi began tagging together quite regularly in multi-mans, and on October 11th, they challenged reigning champions, the Holy Demon Army, Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe, for the World Tag Team titles. Akiyama and Kobashi lost that match. In that year's Real World Tag League, Akiyama and Kobashi entered and faced off against teams such as the newly named Untouchables, Mitsuharu Misawa and Yoshinari Ogawa, No Fear, Yoshihiro Takayama and Takawa Mori, the Holy Demon Army, and others. Akiyama and Kobashi would make it to the finals against Stan Hansen and Vader, who they would go on to defeat in an excellent 19-minute match. The match is the first time the name Burning is officially used for Akiyama and Kobashi's union. It's the first time they walk out in the t-shirts. It really is a must-watch match. Burning expanded into a unit when they added younger, up-and-coming wrestlers Yoshinobu Kanemaru, who debuted in 96, and Kentaro Shiga, who debuted in 94, to their numbers. An interesting note about Kanemaru is that despite debuting two years prior to joining Burning, he won Tokyo Sports Rookie of the Year Award in 98, which speaks to the powerful mentorship he received from both Kobashi and Akiyama. Another fun fact is that Akiyama drew the original logo for Burning <laughs> with the orange flames representing Kobashi and the blue flames representing himself. Do you think he uh, drew the new Burning logo in DDT? If I didn't know that like Shunma had the merch on lock around there, I'd say yeah, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I think Shunma and Akiyama could have feasibly worked together on it. I definitely <laughs> could see that. <laughs> it's definitely in a style that like June would like. So there's yeah. that. There is that. That is good. <laughs> It is a, it's a very fun logo. I will definitely say that. On July 7th, 1999, Burning defeated the Holy Demon Army to become World Tag Team Champions. Their first reign with the titles lasted 153 days. All in all, Burning would go on to win the Real World Tag League a second time in 1999, making them back-to-back winners and hold the tag belts again from October 1999 to February 2000. Some of the units they spent time feeding with are, of course, the Holy Demon Army, the Untouchables, No Fear, and Movement, which is a unit that formed around Johnny Ace, Johnny Smith, Bart Gunn, and Wolf Hawkfield. Some matches that you can check out for burning during this time period are Kenta Kobashi and Jun Akiyama versus Stan Hansen and Vader. It's the match that we just referenced from December 5th, 1998. Kobashi and Akiyama versus Yoshihiro Takayama and Takao Amori from October 30th, 1999. It's a personal favorite. Kenta Kobashi and Jun Akiyama versus Mitsuharu Misawa and Yoshinori Agawa from March 6, 1999. Now, Kenta Kobashi does become Triple Crown Champion for a third and final time in February of 2000 while under burning, but Misawa decides to leave All Japan and take the majority of the roster with him, leaving only Kawada and Masanobu Fuchi and about eight gaijin left to the All Japan roster. Misawa and company form pro wrestling Noah, and Akiyama turns on Kobashi at the very end of the first show, thus ending his partnership with him. Akiyama went on to form his own unit, Sternness, while Kobashi eventually formed a second wave of burning around him. We won't get into the second incarnation of burning because we'll pick up there in our Noah Faction episode that will drop in June, but we will talk about the third wave that reformed in all Japan quite a lot later in this episode. But before we get there, we should probably talk about, I guess, I'd say some of the darker days of all Japan and its uh, faction booking. And you can't really talk about that. You can't really talk about that middle era at all, really. And we'll talk about why in just a moment without talking about the voodoo murders. After a brief stint in All Japan in the early 2000s, 
Taru returned to the promotion on January 3rd, 2005, defeating Keiji Muto and David Flair alongside Johnny Stamboli. The pair were soon later joined by Chuck Palumbo, Shuji Kondo, Brother Yashi, and Giant Bernard. Taru proclaimed the stable as the Voodoo Murders, which is an apparent tribute to an old pulp magazine. I didn't really find any information on the magazine, but I found that really interesting. Taru drastically changed his style. In Toriyumon, he had this very Yakuza-like character, but here he adopts this kind of sinister, supernatural cult-like appearance. If you watch Champions Night 3, you sort of see his whole deal. Voodoo Murders regularly employed these illegal tactics and weapons into their matches, often opting to lose via disqualification in order to beat down their opponents even more. I will not be giving some match wrecks for this one because there really isn't a whole lot to wreck. I'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But in that way, this faction was very similar to what I see in sort of older Suzuki-gun or modern day Odotai of stardom, where winning matters a lot less than causing pain to your opponents. So you can imagine this is the heel stable. This is a such a heelish stable that there's no way you can like them. So they start off actually feuding in all Japan with the other top heel stable at the time, which I thought was really weird. And that would be Rod, uh, R-O-N-D, Roughly Obsess and Destroy. This faction, Rod, was effectively your big Gaijin heel stable with only one native member. They only really managed to turn babyface because of the sheer heel power of voodoo murders. I found that so funny that voodoo murders is so annoying that they turned your stereotypical Gaijin heels into baby faces. <laughs> This feud lasts for roughly over a year and ended in a big unit disband match when the remaining members of Rod turned on their leader to join Voodoo Murders. With Rod out of the way, this allowed for Voodoo Murders to become the single most dominant heel force in all Japan. And Dominant is right. Their member list is extensive, to say the least. We've got names like Lance Hoyt. We've got Satoshi Kojima, Minoru Tanaka, and of course, Suwama, who is of special interest, not only to me, but here in general, because Suwama really got his big breakout from this stable. He had been a hot prospect before. He had some really big, high-profile wins. But when he joined Voodoo Murders, he transformed. He dropped his first name and he changed the ma kanji of his last name to mean demon, becoming a lot more cool and a lot more dangerous. On January 3rd, 2008, he betrayed the stable by saving Keiji Muto and Joe Doring from a post-match attack, which really, really kick-started Suwama's rise to Acedom. And I think that's honestly just sort of the point of the stable, the crux of the stable. The matches weren't good. Like they're far from good. Half of them, I wouldn't even say are real matches. There's just so much cheating, so much interference. They all ended early. However, it served as a hub 
for almost all of AJPW's storylines at this time. So many people were constantly coming in from outside promotions. They were coming and going and betraying each other. And this created almost a seamlessness in the booking where each faction at this time sort of bled into the other, making it almost impossible to talk about one stable without covering the history of another. And that really just, begins with voodoo murders. One really, really good example of this is Kojima's F4, which stands for friend, fight, fan, and future. Continuing so many well-named things in the history yeah, of all Japan. Continuing in a very, very good uh, like legacy of incredible acronyms in all Japan. But this was uh, Kojima's very first stable of his own, and it was formed after he came back from injury in 2008 and decided he didn't want to be in voodoo murders anymore. Who could blame him? And it ended in February 2010, where voodoo murders defeated the group in another unit disband match. And that just sort of shows how factions at this time really began and died all at the hands of this one heel faction. The stable itself was really long lived, lasting for a whopping six years, where at this point in all Japan, this was a really long time. And it ended rather infamously and controversially. On May 29th, 2011, Nobukazu Hirai, known at the time as Super Hate, suffered a stroke after a backstage fight with Taru. In the aftermath of this awful event, All Japan suspended not only Taru, but also Kono, Minoru, and Mazada for not attempting to stop the assault. Then they disbanded the voodoo murders and vacated all the titles that the stable held. Really leaves you wondering why we needed to do a little anniversary match to heat up Deacon Suwama recently. But yeah, yeah I don't know. It was a fun little match. I wouldn't want to bring back that history of All Japan necessarily if I were the booker. Um, the match itself, like Taru was sort of not there. Uh, very inconsequential. Like you said, it really felt like a heat up match. We'll definitely talk about that during Talking Triple Crown. But um, yeah, it's not exactly a period of history I would want to relive. And Leading into that <laughs> brings yes, up, speaking of that, speaking of uh, sort of darker days in all Japan, we have Gurentai. So Gurentai was active from 2008 to 2010. It's very unique in a lot of ways. So Gurentai itself is the term for a post-war criminal gang in Japan, and it was formed as an offshoot of Nozawa Rongai and Mazada's Tokyo Gurantai, which is a traveling stable that has appeared in wrestling promotions all over Japan, including Noah, Dragon Gate, New Japan. It's showed up in indies like DDT. It's really been everywhere. They produce their own shows. They've been around since 2000, but they didn't become an actual stable in all Japan, not a traditional stable until 2008, which I find particularly interesting. But their time in All Japan was not necessarily an invasion angle. I think that may have been what Nozawa was going for, but it didn't really have a lot of elements of that. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. 
rather how it was described in sports magazines was that it was a subgroup of Tokyo Gurantai. It kind of existed separately, but not really. It effectively existed as its own all Japan specific stable consisting of Mazada, Nozawa, Takamura, Taiokea, Minoru Suzuki, and Yoshihiro Takayama. In January of 2009, Takamura suffered a shoulder injury that eventually led to his retirement, and Fujita joined the stable in February of 2009, reuniting with Mazada and Nozawa after being in Tokyo Gurantai. Him entering the stable was treated as though a new member was coming in and not like he was already a member of Tokyo Gurantai. It's a really bizarre thing where they exist, but they don't in this almost different universe sort of situation. And not only that, but there was sort of this weird kind of ethos. Like there was a very different sort of thing going on. It felt like Nozawa, as I stated, and Mazada were fighting a different war than say Minoru Suzuki and Taiokea who Minoru Suzuki wanted to tag with Taiokea. That was a big storyline in the beginning of this faction. He had uh, beaten Taio a few years previous for the Triple Crown. And, you know, he comes into this faction and he wants uh, Kea to join him and go for the tag belts together. And there's a little bit more of a heartwarming kind of cool, badass heavyweights storyline over Nozawa and Mazada and Fujita having this Tokyo Gurantai, but actually Gurantai, joining all Japan and invading. So there's this weird disconnect in this faction that just... Some of it goes over well, some of it doesn't. You have Takayama, who is beloved everywhere, and he's, you know, joining, he's tagging with Kea and Suzuki, and they're going great. So it's just a very bizarre situation, but a very cool looking unit. Let me tell you that. (laughs) Takayama leaves the stable when he stopped appearing regularly in All Japan in December 2009. And this was a few months after dropping the Triple Crown to Satoshi Kojima on September 26th. Tayo eventually leaves the stable in 2009 as well due to a knee injury that took him out for five months. Gurntai was actually pretty successful in a lot of ways. You have, like I mentioned, Taiokea and Minoru Suzuki with the world tag team titles. They held it for a really long time. You have Minoru Suzuki and Nozawa Rongai with the all Asia tag team titles. Minoru Suzuki won the champion carnival under the stable twice. And Takayama had the triple crown. Suzuki did hold the Triple Crown twice in his career, but he never did so while a member of Gurantai, which is actually very interesting because that leads us to the ultimate end of the stable. In the end, Gurantai kind of splits up throughout the first few months of 2010. Nozawa and Fujita sort of go off to Pro Wrestling Noah to chase after the GHC junior tag titles, but Mazada decides to stay as a regular in AJPW. And then Minoru Suzuki sort of ends the stable as it was known in AJPW after his victory in Champion Carnival on April 11th, 2010. After finally defeating Masukatsu Funaki and burying the hatchet with this longtime rival, 
he announced that he would put the stable on hiatus, that Gurantai was on hiatus, and then he goes on to win the Triple Crown from Ryota Hama without any stablemates in his corner. And it's just so bizarre. It doesn't feel like anybody's really attached this stable or what it was or what it meant. They, you know, Nazawa wants to go do his own thing. Mazada wanted to stay in all Japan. And then Minoru Suzuki really only cared about beating Funaki at this time. So they all had their own goals and nothing really ever seemed to stick together. Tokyo Gurantai. <laughs> however, continue to exist for the longest time outside of AJPW, generally and almost always revolving around Nosawa Rongai, who did reunite once in 2013 to challenge for the All-Asia tag team titles with Mazada, and then they were known as Gurintai again. But after that, and any time in between, it's all Tokyo Gurintai. And this to me shows where all Japan is at at this time when it comes to this booking. It's scattered. There's a bunch of freelancers coming in and out. Oh, there's a lot of changing of hands of who is calling the shots in all Japan. People are leaving and the booking can't compensate. We will talk about that a lot when we get into burning and as we move on. There's there's just a lot going on and they can't really juggle it. And to me, Gurantai is really the big start, the big symbol of that uh, happening. And we've talked about this and we're not going to get into a, this a ton in this type of episode, but when you really examine Gurantai and Tokyo Gurantai and look at the players, it is interesting to see how repetitive Nosawa is in his booking through something like these factions. And it's really interesting because if you look at fans' reactions and even, like I said, sports magazines, they all view Minoru Suzuki as the leader of Gurantai, whereas Tokyo Gurantai is almost specifically a Nozawa thing. So that to me also just shows this weird disconnect that just no one really knew what was going on there. Utterly bizarre. But we'll talk now about a very brief period of, of stabilization in all Japan. Uh, very later, brief. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say later on, I believe Jonathan refers to it as sort of the uh, would-be savior of all Japan. <laughs> and uh, we're going to find out why. So bring us into it. That's right. We're going to talk about the third incarnation of burning, which lasted about two years in all Japan from 2013 to 2015. So that's where we are in all Japan right now. And like Rachel said, Later on in this episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Jonathan Foy. He's going to give you a rundown on the third incarnation of Burning, but it's important to talk about them because of their historical importance to the promotion, and they're also tied to another crossroads in all Japan's history. So we've touched on some of what we're about to cover on episode two of this podcast called I Am Noah back in December, but on December 3rd, 2012, Noah released Kenta Kobashi from his contract. The news that Noah had released Kobashi was shocking. This is because Misawa, and even Giant Baba before him, was so well known for being very generous and keeping wrestlers who worked for him under contract, even when they could no longer wrestle, that they could still have an income and be a part of the company. For Kobashi to be released and not be given work to do as an ambassador for Noah was a slap in the face for those loyal to Kobashi and for those who knew Misawa as well. As a result of the decision to release Kobashi, it was announced that Jun Akiyama, Yoshinobu Kanamaru, Kodoro Suzuki, Goshi Azaki, and Atsushi Aoki would not be renewing their contracts with Noah on December 4th. 
On December 9th, Kobashi did announce during an in-ring interview at a NOAA event that he would retire in a NOAA ring in 2013. But despite this update, NOAA confirmed on December 19th that negotiations were over and Akiyama, Kanemaru, Kotaro, Shiyazaki, and Aoki would be leaving the promotion after December 24th. Now, on January 26, 2013, in Oda City General Gymnasium, the group of five made an unadvertised appearance during All Japan's show, and this was massive news. They announced they were joining All Japan, and it formed the third incarnation of Burning with Kobashi's blessing. During their first few months, they were freelancers, but worked almost exclusively for All Japan. This freelancer's caveat established them as outsiders, as we mentioned before, and the booking moving forward was Burning versus All Japan. Very quickly, Burning saw a ton of success as a stable. Yoshinobu Kanemaru was the first to win a title. He defeated Shuji Kondo for the World Junior Heavyweight title on February 23, 2012. Akiyama and Shiyazaki next won the World Tag Team Championships by defeating Get Wild, which was Takao Mori and Manabu Soya on March 17, 2013. Atsushi Aoki and Kotaro Suzuki won the 2013 Junior Hyper Tag League and went on to take the All-Asia Tag Team titles from Junior Stars, which is Koji Kanemoto and Minoru Tanaka, on April 25th, 2013. Jun Akiyama also won the 2013 Champion Carnival, defeating Kai in the finals. He lost his title shot against reigning Triple Crown Champion Suwama on June 30th, 2013. Burning was so dominant. Takawa Mori and Suwama <laughs> set aside their rivalry to rally all Japan against the faction. And this is awesome. I love when old men set aside their blood feuds to wage war against another old man and his wards. Old man fight. No, that's what <laughs> wrestling's all about. Absolutely. <laughs> that is the crux of wrestling. Anything else? No, it's all just <laughs> leading up to, it's leading up to the point where they get to be the old men who create fights. Anyone young? No, you're just working towards the old man period. I hate to break it to you guys. <laughs> In our interview session with Jonathan Jesse, we will talk more about the second roster split that occurred at the end of June in 2013. But Keiji Muto, president of All Japan at the time, left the company along with a few roster members and Nobuo Shirashi took over. This marked a change in the way All Japan and thus Burning was booked. And I do want to mention that by July 5th, 2013, all five members of Burning did sign contracts with All Japan, ending their status as freelancers. On October 22nd, 2013, Akiyama and Shiyazaki lost the heavyweight tag belts to Suwama and Joe Doring of Evolution. The day after, Shiyazaki announced he was leaving Burning to further pursue the Triple Crown. And this is a really interesting and sort of strange change in Burning's storyline. And it's very sudden. Shiyazaki had challenged Suwama for the Triple Crown when Akiyama lost his own title match. And he also lost to Suwama on August 25th, 2013. But he felt that in order to get closer to being the Triple Crown champion, Shizaki had to leave Burning. And it just didn't really make a whole lot of sense. We're gonna talk more about Exceed in a few moments, but he did form a new unit called Exceed with Kenso. He was quickly betrayed by him, but saved by Kotaro Suzuki and Kento Miyahara, who joined him. Aoki followed Kotaro, his tag partner, to Exceed, which left Akiyama and Kanemaru as the only two members left in Burning. Akiyama and Kanemaru would go on to defeat Aoki and Kotaro for the All-Asia Tag Belts on January 26, 2014, and Akiyama would make it to the 2014 Champion Carnival Finals, where he would ultimately lose to Takao Amori. 
However, as 2014 progressed, Akiyama started tagging with Takao Mori as Wild Burning, combining the names of their tag teams, and Kanemaru was working in a tag with Ultimo Dragon. They were still being billed as Burning, but working with other tag partners, and then Burning more or less just becomes inactive. I do want to say, though, that on November 1st, Akiyama defeated Akabono to become Triple Crown Champion, so it's still a notable achievement under the third incarnation of Burning. But... Burning more or less comes to an end when Kanemaru announced on November 20th that he was leaving All Japan by December 1st. Akiyama stayed on and had become the president of All Japan by that time. We're going to talk about some of the additional fallout and match recommendations from this iteration of Burning coming up in our interview portion with our wonderful guests. But for the time being, let's move over and talk about Mr. Go Shiyazaki and his faction, which you had just mentioned, and that would be Exceed. So on October 23rd, 2013, like you said, Shiyazaki left Burning and announced that he wanted to go his own way. On November 18th, Shiyazaki announced in this big press conference that the name of the new stable would be called Xseed, X-C-E-E-D, and that Kenso would be the very first member. He also announced that there would be two other members and that Exceed would be a four-man unit. Now, this is my favorite part. He considered keeping the E in the name, but thought that having the four letters C-E-E-D stand out on its own could represent the four members of the unit. <laughs> and that is just the most Shiozaki thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh, such a Shio quote. I can't. <laughs> Oh, man. But this led to a lot of speculation from the fans. At this time, Kento Miyahara had been tagging with Shiyazaki, and people maybe thought that he could be a new member. But there was also speculation of both Kotaro Suzuki and Atsushi Aoki, as they had both announced their intentions to leave Burning as well. The answer came three days after this press conference during Exceed's debut match on November 21st, 2013. Kenso refuses to tag in and reveals that he had been working with their tag opponents, D'Lo Brown and Bambi Killer the entire time. Such a WWE reveal. <laughs> the most WWE twist. And if that doesn't show exactly where the booking and direction of All Japan had been at that time, I don't know what does. They proceed to beat down Shiyazaki, who is then saved by Miyahara and Suzuki, and later joined by Atsushi who are all already in ex Seed's announced signature color, red, which was a color that Shiyazaki himself picked out to represent a rebirth in all Japan. So in the end, Exceed did still have four members. He was not lying. Kenso went on to form Dark Kingdom, and these two stables were set to feud together for the remainder of 2013, trading wins pretty evenly until Shiyazaki was finally able to score a win over Kenso and achieved his revenge on him on January 2nd, 2014. This sort of ended the feud officially. However, Kenso did attempt to core Aoki into Dark Kingdom after Aoki left Exceed on February 5th, though ultimately he was unsuccessful. And Dark Kingdom sort of has their own run, but eventually falls apart as people begin to leave the promotion, which is 
just such a huge trend at this time. I know I mentioned that in Gurantai, but it sort of dies with a fizzle. Exceed, on the other hand, does have a little bit more success. They do go back to being a four-member unit on July 27, 2014, when Black Mensurei joins under his real name, Yohei Nakajima, where he was able to win the Gaura TV Championship in 2015 against Billy Ken Kidd. The group in general was fairly successful. They won the All-Asia Tag Team and Gaura TV titles twice, and the World Junior World Tag Team, Junior Battle of Glory, the, and the Royal Road Tournament once. And of course, they also won the Triple Crown when Shiyazaki defeated Joe Doring on January 3rd, 2015, in an absolutely stupendous match. You absolutely need to check that out. On September 28th, 2015, however, Shiyazaki announced his resignation from All Japan, which led him and Miyahara vacating the World Tag Team Championships that they held at the time. He wrestled his final AJPW match on October 4th. Exceed was finally officially disbanded when Kotaro Suzuki also announced his departure from All Japan on November 16th, 2015. So ultimately, Exceed went the same way as Dark Kingdom, as Gurantai, where they just eventually fall apart because there's so much movement. People are leaving the promotion. People are coming in and leaving once again. There's a lot of freelancers. And again, it's just like the booking can't quite keep up with all of these changes that All Japan is going under under this time. Absolutely. It was a tremendously difficult time for the promotion, but a good segue into the next faction that we're going to talk about, which is the Aces faction, and really a very consistent symbol, I think, for all Japan. We are going to talk about Evolution. Evolution started in 2014, but to really talk about Evolution, you have to talk about Last Revolution first. <laughs> um, Last Revolution is made up, uh, was made up rather, of All Japan's ace Suwama and Joe Doring. The name was taken from their finisher, Suwama's Last Ride and Joe Doring's Revolution Bomb. Last Revolution expanded into a unit when Kaz Hayashi, Shuji Kondo, and Yasufumi Nakanawe joined. When Keiji Muto left All Japan, Hayashi, Shuji Kondo, and Nakanawe departed the promotion as well. So Doring announced that as a result, Last Revolution would be disbanded. <laughs> Again, more people leaving, but it gets better. I know. <laughs> I didn't want to laugh to spoil it, but... <laughs> In September 2013, Suama and Doring announced they would be joining together again under the name evolution with the name being taken to mean the evolution of Doring Suwama and last revolution <laughs> continuing continuing the trend of well-named things in all Japan Extremely Suwama well-named. and Doring quickly defeated Akiyama and Shiyazaki of burning to take the world heavyweight tag titles and Suwama still held the triple crown championship at the time for a little bit longer than, um, after that making him the first quintuple crown champion in about 12 years Evolution became a stable when Hikaru Sato asked to join and Suama accepted his appeal on February 16, 2014. On July 27th of the same year, after defending the World Junior Heavyweight title from Sato, Atsushi Aoki announced that he would join Evolution. He and Sato began teaming together as Hentai Jiatai, 
or Pervert Self-Defense Forces, another excellent name. After Go Shiyazaki left All Japan in late 2015, Suwama offered his former tag partner, Kento Miyahara, a spot in Evolution. Kento declined, <laughs> but agreed to tag with Suwama for the 2015 Real World Tag League Tournament. After they won the tournament, Kento expressed an interest in continuing to tag with Suwama, but Suwama attacked him and instead announced that Naoya Nomura, who had been seeking admission to the unit, would join Evolution instead. And it's really just a classic uh, little Kento setup there. I love Suwama and Kento's relationship, and this is just the absolute core of it. This is just <laughs> such a good little slice of, of it, and I just the good stuff it absolutely is in january 2016 suama regained the triple crown championship but was stripped of it 10 days later when he ruptured his achilles tendon and would need to take time off to recover he does return to the ring in july in february 2016 it was announced that joe Doring was battling brain cancer he would be sidelined for many months to seek surgery and treatment for his cancer and around september 2016 nomura joined kento miyahara's faction next stream we'll talk about next stream momentarily Joe Doring returned to All Japan in January 2017, but by July, tensions would form within the group and Doring would quit Evolution, followed by Sato, who had recently lost to Suwama in a grappling match. Doring and Suwama immediately began feuding, and Doring vowed to kill his former stable. Doring won the Triple Crown Championship from Suwama in October 2017, ultimately bringing that feud to an end. Now, Suwama and Aoki remained the only regular members of Evolution until Yusuke Okada's appeals to join were eventually accepted after some reluctance in January 2018. And in order to fight the extremely short-lived Fujita army, which was made up of Kazuyuki Fujita, Nosawa Rongai, and Kai, Suwama asked Sato to rejoin Evolution on February 13th, and Sato officially rejoined on February 14th. But again, this was such a short-lived threat and storyline in all Japan, it more or less seems like Suwama tricked Sato into joining Evolution again. That is very funny. And very Suwama. Yeah. It just, it just fits so well. It truly is his faction. Unfortunately, Atsushi Aoki passed away in a tragic motorcycle accident on June 3rd, 2019 at 41 years old. He was the world junior heavyweight champion at the time of his passing. President of all Japan at the time, Jun Akiyama, announced in a press conference that the title will be vacated after the title's mandatory defense period, which allowed Aoki to reign as de facto champion in honor of his contributions to the promotion until late 2019. And you can truly still feel Aoki's presence in all Japan through to this day. Dan Tamura won the Asanaru Cup Competition League in July 2020 and announced his intentions to join Evolution, which Suwama accepted. Yusuke Okada left All Japan in December 2020. He joined DDT in January 2021 and is now part of the fourth incarnation of Burning with Jun Akiyama, which is just a weird fun fact at this point. Now, Evolution has examples of affiliate members who are not officially a part of Evolution, but are still related to the faction. And one of the best examples of this is Shuji Ichikawa. He was in a tag team with Suwama called Violent Giants, excellent name, that debuted on October 5th, 2017. They were a highly decorated tag team with four World Tag Team Championship reigns and two Real World Tag League wins. They also won Tag Team of the Year in 2017, 2018, and 2019, courtesy of Tokyo Sports. 
The most recent example of an affiliate member of Evolution is Shotaro Ashino. He formed a tag team with Suwama after the dissolution of Violent Giants and Enfants Tarib. Shotaro began joining Evolution for tags in June of 2021. On September 7, 2021, they defeated Nextstream to become World Tag Team Champions. They announced their official name, Runaway Suplex. Rachel, what am I going to say? Amazing names. Amazing the best names. names. The best, the best names. names. They announced this a few days later during a press conference. Suwama described their union as an alliance between Evolution and Enfants Tarib, which is compelling in that Enfants still lives on in the same way that a soldier will wear the dog tags of a fallen comrade around his neck. Runaway Suplex currently hold the world heavyweight tag titles. Now, as you can imagine, being the Aces faction, this is a highly, highly decorated faction. And we alluded to a lot of that throughout telling you the story of evolution. Just to give you a little bit of a breakdown of that, Suama has become the 46th, 49th, 54th, 58th, and 63rd Triple Crown Heavyweight Champion during Evolution's existence. Joe Doring was the 50th Triple Crown Champion. There's multiple World Tag Team Championship reigns, multiple World Junior Heavyweight Championship reigns, all Asia Tag Team Championship reigns, a multiple Real World Tag League wins there, the Junior Tag Battle of Glory multiple times, the Royal Road Tournament. Suama has won the Royal Road Tournament three times under Evolution, 2016, 2017, and 2021. Um, and like we mentioned before, multiple Tokyo sports wins, including a 2019 Pro Wrestling Award achievement for Atsushi Aoki. Quick question, but is Evolution the longest running faction in All Japan history? Because going through it, it really seems like it might be. Yes, Evolution is the longest running by quite a bit. Most of All Japan's factions are fairly short-lived. There's a couple that make it into like the five, six-year range at points, but most of them don't last longer than a year, two years, three years at best. Evolution really has stood the test of time and has truly become synonymous with Suwama. I mean, that's really like his brand, but yeah, a very, very long-running faction at this point. Yeah, and that is interesting that you should say that, that it's sort of become his brand and who he is, because I would say the same about the next faction we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about that with Jesse as well, but let's talk a little bit about Next Dream. Oh, I'd love to. This is just a an endlessly fascinating little faction, and, and Jesse's going to do a great job of going into some of the details later, but to kick us off, Next Dream. The end of 2015 left Miyahara in a tough spot. We've mentioned this several times now, but Shiyazaki had announced his departure from all Japan. Him and, him and Kento had to return the heavyweight tag belts. And then Kotaro Suzuki also announced he's going to be leaving all Japan, which officially brought an end to Exceed. And after tagging with Suwama during that real world tag league in the aftermath of Exceed dissolving, Kento showed interest in continuing their tag team. But again, Suwama attacked him and added Naoya Nomura to Evolution's <laughs> ranks instead of him. So in response, Kento fired back and he formed a new partnership with Jake Lee, who had come out from the back to save Kento from Suwama. And on December 8th, he vowed to lead a generational change or shift in all Japan pro wrestling. Kento said at the conference, our generation will create a new path. I will lead the way. And you know, Kento said this because he stressed that he would lead the way. On December 25th, they announced their name would be Next Dream. Next stream is a coined word that combines next, which obviously means next, and stream, which is meant to mean wind. It has the meaning of creating a new wind in all Japan pro wrestling, creating a new flow, creating a new momentum. 
Now, from what I understand, Keiichi Sato was meant to join next stream and was scheduled to appear at Kento and Jake's presser, but he didn't show. He left All Japan three months after debuting in January 2016 for what was described as family problems, but by March 2016, he was wrestling for W1 with um, Mudo. Interesting. Very interesting how that works. Yeah, I think you said it best, but it's not necessarily a... uh... A lie. It might have been family problems, but we've seen that trick before. So. Exactly. It's fine. That's fine. He makes his way back around anyway, just not in next stream. Um, <laughs> on February 12, 2016, Kento Miyahara won the vacant Triple Crown Championship for the first time in a match against Zeus. He became the youngest Triple Crown Champion, breaking the record previously held by 29-year-old Terry Gordy, which is incredible because by the time Terry Gordy won that in 1990, he already looked like he was 40. So... <laughs> This would mark the start of Kento's generational change. On September 19th, 2016, Kento and Jake faced Yuma Ayagi and Naoya Nomura in a tag match. Kento and Jake won the match, and Kento extended the invitation for both of them to join Next Stream and shook their hands. Backstage, Yuma and Nomura talked about their decision to join Next Stream. Yuma said he thought it was necessary for the youngest wrestlers in all Japan to create a new landscape. Nomura acknowledged that he had been a part of Evolution and would be leaving that faction really soon, but he wanted to make all Japan more exciting with the younger generation. Jake and Nomura go on to win the World Tag Team titles on July 17th, 2017. But an ankle injury on July 29th would force him out of action. Jake and Nomura would be forced to return the belts. On April 25th, 2018, Jake Lee would return and announce his withdrawal from Next Stream. He formed Sweeper with Ryoji Sai, Koji Iwamoto, and the now returned Keiichi Sato. Jake Lee left Next Stream to step out of Kento Shadow. To hear a breakdown of Jake Lee's journey through all Japan, go back to episode one of Kick Out with Jesse. On February 24th, 2019, Nomura challenged Kento for the Triple Crown. Kento was in his fourth reign by that point. Nomura decided to withdraw from Next Stream, leaving the All-Asia Tag Team titles he had held at the time with Yuma in the balance. He left the decision to return the belts to Yuma, saying that Yuma could also leave Next Stream. Yuma chose to return the belts and was angry that Nomura had left him in something of a hostage situation between Next Stream and the All-Asia Tag Team belts. He stayed with Next Stream for the time being. On January 3rd, 2020, Kento defended his Triple Crown Championship against Jake Lee, and afterward, when Yuma was strapping the belt onto Kento, he German suplexed his faction partner. The betrayal was a surprise, and Yuma declared that 2020 would be the year of Aoyagi. He challenged for Kento's belt after that. On January 11th, Yuma said Next Stream was his faction, and that if he won their Triple Crown match, he would expel Kento from the team. Yuma lost their match on February 11th, 2020. Kento told him afterward he had graduated from Next Stream, ending Yuma's affiliation with the faction. With that defense, Kento had tied Toshiaki Kawada's record of 10 Triple Crown title defenses. The drama. So dramatic. And even more dramatic is Suwama coming out and declaring that he can't take that accolade anymore from Kento, the tying Toshiaki Kawada's record, but he can stop his reign, which he does go on to do actually at that point. Anyway, to return to next stream, by July 25th, 2020, Kento had officially formed a new faction with Rising Hayato, Jiro Ikemen Kirishio, and Francesco Akira called Kento, Jiro, Akira, and Hayato's Adventure. <laughs> Ikemen and Kento did tag together and challenge for the World Heavyweight Tag Titles, but they lost to Violent Giants on August 31st. 
Drew also at some point left for WWE, which effectively ends this unit, just kind of falls apart and doesn't really go anywhere after this point. Now, post-Champion Carnival final in which Kento lost to Zeus, Yuma reunited with Kento, and Kento asked fans to help them choose a name for their team on Twitter, but Yuma just suggested Next Stream, and it was decided that they would revive their former faction. They entered Real World Tag League in 2020 and won, and then they went on to defeat Violent Giants for the World Tag Team belt on January 2nd, 2021. On January 10th, Rising Hayato and Atsuki Ayogi the younger brother of Yuma, faced each other in a singles match, which ended in a double knockout. Post-match, both were offered spots in next stream, which they accepted. Yuma and Kento won Real World Tag League again in 2021, but were defeated by reigning champions Runaway Suplex on January 3rd, 2022. Next stream also has an example of an affiliated member. Yoshitatsu was never a member of Next Stream, <laughs> but he did tag with and hold the World Tag Championships with Kento in 2018. So next stream being the younger aces faction is also a fairly decorated and successful faction. Kento has become the 55th, 57th, 60th, 62nd, and 65th triple crown heavyweight champion under next stream. Um, they've won the world tag team championships three different times, all Asia tag team championships as well. Kento has won a champion carnival under next stream. He's also been a Royal road winner. They've won some pro wrestling awards as well. And if you stick around, you can hear from Jesse of Royal Road 72 because she has some great match recommendations for you and some more insight into the inner workings of Next Stream. And it is really interesting. And we might talk about this at the end of the episode, how these two factions, Evolution and Next Stream, I know I mentioned it earlier, are very associated with their ace and junior, their young ace, and that it's sort of attached to them specifically. It's less about the ethos of the factions. And like I said, we'll definitely talk about that later on um, as we get through. But I think this really signifies where All Japan is at right now with its faction booking. However, that doesn't mean it doesn't have its big angles and storylines surrounding factions, which leads us into our last faction we're going to be talking about, and that would be Total Eclipse. Absolutely. And to your point, Total Eclipse is, is kind of a rare example of a big storyline that kind of shook up all Japan and had all these lasting implications because they don't really book that way. But Total Eclipse is sort of the outlier in that respect. So Total Eclipse is also our newest faction. It started in the pandemic in 2021. But Total Eclipse's story begins with another faction. It begins with Anfans Tarib. And if you want a more in-depth overview of Anfans, please check out our third episode with Smiley, who walked us through their history back in January. To give a quick rundown, Anfans was a heel faction that actually formed in W1 under Shotaro Ashino in 2017, along with people you'll recognize like Yusuke Kodama and Kuma Arashi. The unit was disbanded after W1 folded in April 2020, but reformed when they began appearing for All Japan Pro Wrestling in August 2020. W1 alumnus Koji Doi and All Japan trainee Hokuto Omori joined Anfonts soon after. Ashino's time in All Japan got off to a bit of a rough start with two failed Triple Crown challenges against Suwama, one on June 30th, 2020, and the other on January 21st, 2021. Tension grew between Ashino and Amori, who seemed to be questioning Ashino's leadership as a result of these failed challenges. Koji Doi and Kuma Arashi appeared to be falling out of step with Ashino as well. On February 23, 2021, Jin, Jake Lee, and Koji Iwamoto, and Taijiri had a match against Anfant's members Amori, Kuma, and Ashino. 
Ashino is betrayed by his teammates and Yusuke Kodama. Ashino crawls to the feet of Jake Lee and tries to appeal to him, but Jake joins the members of Anfants in attacking him instead. Jake also turned on Koji Iwamoto, who refused to support Jake's actions. Ashino is kicked out of the faction he founded, and Jin also comes to an end. Total Eclipse formed out of the ashes of Anfants Tarib. The members include Jake Lee as the clear leader of the group, Koji Doi, Kuma Arashi, Tajiri, Okuda Omori, and Yusuke Kodama. One thing that we saw that Jake said in terms of the name Total Eclipse as he was explaining it, he says, the moon cannot shine on its own. It's a reflection of the sun's light. The darker the sun, the darker and darker our presence becomes. And this was a very difficult to translate line. So I did my absolute best with it, but um, he's very much embodied this dark sort of character, this almost um, so over the top and anime villain-esque. It's it's almost a little dorky, but it's uh, got this really cool uh, vibe of wanting to darken the entire landscape of all Japan. And that quote sort of sums up his feelings on that said with an icy smile, so says the uh, journalist. For perfect effect. So Jake extended an invitation to Koji Iwamoto to reconsider and join in Total Eclipse. This offer was ultimately refused, and after a tag match on March 14th between Jake and Kodama versus Ashino and Iwamoto, Jake was victorious over his former tag partner to end that storyline. Afterward, Jake told Iwamoto, I'm going higher. Sayonara, Iwamoto. Because so much of the drama, like we just said, of Total Eclipse comes from speaking like anime villains. But that parting line from Jake is very significant to his motivations. The formation of Total Eclipse came at a pivotal point in Jake's career after unfortunate injuries and failing to get the right results where it mattered kept him in a holding pattern. He used the faction shakeup to debut a more overt heel persona and launched himself to the next level of his career he had been seeking for quite some time. Jake won the 2021 Champion Carnival and went on to win his first Triple Crown Championship under Total Eclipse. He also won Tokyo Sports Outstanding Performance Award in 2021. The rest of Total Eclipse has also been fairly successful since the unit's formation. Hakuto Omori and Yusuke Kodama at the time of this recording hold the All-Asia Tag Team Championships. Tajiri and Hakuto Omori and Yusuke Kodama at one point had the All-Japan TV Certified Six-Person Tag Championships. Um, to be honest, I don't know if he still has this belt, but Tajiri <laughs> did win the L- MLW World Middleweight Championship. And then Kuma Arashi and Koji Doi made it to the finals of the 2021 Real World Tag League, but were ultimately defeated by Extreme. With any luck, they'll have the tag titles eventually. Yeah, fingers crossed. We're big Sooner proponents of that. On December 26, 2021, Ryuki Honda faced Jake Lee in the final match of his seven trial series. Jake defeated Honda, but post-match, Honda asked Jake if he could join in Total Eclipse. Jake declined to answer, and Amori was visibly unhappy by the request. Unfortunately, Jake was injured in that match and later was diagnosed with an orbital fracture and a broken nose. His injuries forced him to return the Triple Crown, and he took time off to heal. Since the match, Honda has become a full-time member of Total Eclipse, and there appears to be tension between Amori and Honda. We are still waiting to see how Honda's admittance to the group plays out now that Jake Lee has returned to wrestling as of the end of March 2022. Though, notably, Honda did just recently say that he would break Jake's nose again in the upcoming Champion Carnival, and Jake responded with a backdrop to Honda. 
So it will be fascinating to watch things develop and find out if we are going to see a battle for control of the group happen between them. And there is, there's just so much drama there. There's so much interest in compelling things that are going on in all Japan right now, which I think is great, but it's definitely, like you said, not necessarily, uh, I wouldn't say normal, but the usual way that all Japan books. And this brings me to ask, so there are a lot of really interesting things going on in all Japan now, and it sort of seems to have come across this rebirth from that middle era that we talked about where these factions just sort of fizzle and die and fail and the booking doesn't really know exactly what to do with them. We seem to be in a lot better place. So I'm going to take this question all the way back to the very beginning where we were talking about Super Generation Army and Sarutagun. Do you see any similarities? I know you said that the booking couldn't be replicated, but do you see any similarities between Sarutagun and Super Generation Army and Evolution versus Next Dream? The funny thing about Evolution and Next Dream is that when Kento became Triple Crown Champion for the first time, Evolution became heels for about two weeks to a month. And Nothing ever came of it. It just sort of petered out. They just went back to being the cool baby face group, the big baby face ace group, you know? So they sort of had the opportunity to do it, right? And they they didn't really do it. Like we, we I, don't, I don't think we really saw any replication there between what Sarutagoon and Super Generation Army were. And again, I, I think that the sort of essence of those stories can be recreated and it's not, and maybe we'll see it one day between next stream and another up and coming faction. You know, maybe, maybe the time between evolution and next stream is sort of past. Maybe we'll see it between next stream and somebody else. So I think that storyline is, you know, a very, we'll we'll see it time and time again, right? Because, you know, time is a flat circle wrestling. So we'll see that story over and over again, because it's very important to how we, we pass, you know, one generation on to the next in wrestling more or less but in terms of like can we see it between evolution and next stream I don't know I, I'm not even sure we'd even really be able to see it if Yuma became champion Yuma's really young Yuma's the youngest I mean he's not the youngest in next stream but of the people who are going to be challenging for the triple crown he is the youngest but I'm not even sure you would see it there because evolution's a really weird faction. Like they're never booked to, to sort of be like, you know, these big, you know, generational sort of, you the know, mean we're going veteran. To, yeah. Like Su- Suwama is a mean veteran, but that's just not how evolution is used. Like Suwama can be used in that way, but evolution itself is not used in that way. That's yeah. That's a good point is that, um, and we will talk about this as we now seg into Jonathan and Jesse, how, All Japan uses these factions and how they're almost introductions to the one specific to the specific wrestlers in them rather than the faction being a whole ethos itself. And that ties in beautifully to what you're saying about evolution, where it's not a mean veteran ace group. It just happens to have a ace who can be a mean veteran in it which is, it's very interesting. And like I said, we will talk about that quite a bit with Jonathan and Jesse.
We are here today with Dr. Jonathan Foy, author of Gomburu, How All Japan Pro Wrestling Survived the Year 2000 Roster Split, and Jesse of at Royal Road 72 on Twitter to discuss two of All Japan Pro Wrestling's factions, Burning, specifically the third incarnation of Burning that reformed in All Japan in 2013, and Nextream. To begin, Jonathan, can you walk us through some of the timeline of Burning's reformation in All Japan? Yeah, sure. So in Australia, we have this debate about our national day, about whether we should keep it on the 26th of January or if we should move it, right? For me, that's not going to be an issue if we do move it because 26th of January to me will always be burning day. Because on 26th of January 2013, that was the day where five of Noah's wrestlers showed up in all Japan um, that they had previously kind of uh, left and gone freelance before this. And uh, so for them to show up in all Japan was a a kind of a huge moment. Um, I believe that was uh, in a sumo hall when they, they did that. So uh, to take that back, just a step there at the uh, end of 2012, when Kenta Kobashi was released by pro wrestling Noah, Um, Part of the backlash to that was a lot of wrestlers backstage were upset and five of them gave notice to Noah that they would not be renewing their contracts at the turn of the year. So that was uh, Go Shiozaki, Jun Akiyama, Kotaro Suzuki, Atsushi, I always, I'm terrible with pronunciation of Japanese names. So please bear with me in in this episode. It's just going to be like that. Um, Atsushi Aoki and Yoshinobu Kanemaru. So here are five wrestlers that are basically at the top of their division, no matter what, and five guys that you can plug into any kind of title picture at any point. So for them to be leaving the company that they were a part of, that in the case of Kotaro Suzuki, this is the company he started with, the same is true of Aoki. But to have these five leave Noah and then make their way to All Japan was huge news at the time, and this was one of these events that uh, kind of was viewed as kind of a catalyst for a new day and a new age potentially in all Japan. And uh, for a little while there, there was a lot of optimism. And for the next six months or so, this was kind of viewed as a a huge move and something that could have got them to level pegging with new Japan. But after a while, as is kind of the the history and the story of all Japan. Um, You know, they have the highs, they have the lows and this story kind of fizzled out a little bit as well. And um, eventually uh, some of these guys made their way back to Noah, but we'll get into it in a little bit, but I think that this is the faction that actually literally saved all Japan or went on to save all Japan. And so there's, there's a history there that's interesting. They kind of, in many ways, uh, literally prevented all Japan from going out of business. So uh, I think that it's a, a cool faction in many, many ways. But uh, when they showed up on the 26th of January, that was a shock to the wrestling industry. That was kind of um, viewed as being out of nowhere. Um, eventually, they were signed and the whole hoopla around their arrival didn't last. But for a little while, their wrestling was good. There was some interesting things happening in uh, old Japan at the time. Yeah. And this is the third incarnation of burning and burning has had four incarnations uh, to date that have spanned over three promotions. It's kind of a really unique faction in that way. What makes this third incarnation interesting to you specifically? What makes it stand out amongst 
all the factions in all Japan's history thus far. So in the way that Burning debuted, uh, when they did show up in January 2013, they were not on the All Japan roster. They were billed as being outsiders. And the way they presented this entire angle, you would think that they weren't part of All Japan. So without meaning to kind of give the impression that they were working together with Noah, what was cool about this was this was kind of similar to the Ishigun invasion of New Japan in the 80s mm-hmm. or the uh, NWO in WCW at the start of that angle when they actually, for a little while there, did get away with giving this impression. But it was almost like having Noah invading uh, all Japan in one way, um, that these five guys that were loyal to Kenda Kabashi uh, were willing to leave, were going there um, to all Japan after the split and after everything that had happened or the acrimony between these two companies, it was kind of interesting to see that go the other way. Um, it's, I think also just one of those cases where it reminds me a little bit of when the radicals made their way over to WWF in 2000, you've got five players that all of them could fit anywhere in the card and at a moment's notice, any of these guys could have main evented. And it's um, it's basically a huge influx of talent that happened all at once. And there's no other way of saying this. These guys were cool. These guys looked cool. They looked like they were um, people that you wanted to have on your roster that you could place anywhere. And uh, I just think that that's something that I think all Japan always needs is this kind of, I think they're getting right now um, in a lot of ways we've had a lot of big news items out of that last show and everything like that. But I think they always need these big news items. And I think this is one of them. Um, I think this is a period of time in wrestling where we'll always think about what could have been and what this could have led to. But even then we've just got these great matches that these guys created and everything that came from this. And I was actually really excited, Jonathan, that you wanted to talk about this group in particular, because some of the things that happen that sort of, derail burning's momentum during this period i think you'll be able to speak to really well and you alluded to it but they have this incredibly strong debut and then they quickly rack up a few title wins between the members and akiyama wins the 2013 champion carnival and then burning's momentum gets broken up by the exit of keiji muto who had been the president of all japan at the time and the entrance of nobuo shirashi who took over as president so, Jonathan, can you speak to Muto's exit and what the company had been like under his tenure? So, the Muto years, um, I just kind of started looking at this recently, and you have some amazing matches and angles and events from this time, and some of the ways in which he rebuilt the All Japan roster was really, really impressive. Um, and then you've got the way that the corporate management of all Japan worked and what that looked like. And one of these things is great and the other is terrible. So you had these great matches and events and everything like that, but then you had this kind of situation where, I mean, Muto is not a businessman. Um, He (laughs) kind of, one of the big jobs that he had, one of the, the big tasks that he was given in becoming president um, was when when he when he started, All Japan did not have a national TV deal. They lost that during the split. Um, his job, in part, was to try to get them a new TV deal, and 
there was discussion underway with TBS at the time to try to get them to sign a deal with All Japan, kind of a, a big network for All Japan. And there was at least one other major network that they negotiated with. And that all failed. Nothing materialized out of that. So you see all these great kinds of um, moves uh, that he makes. And then you see things like he didn't really manage to capitalize on some of the talent that was available at the time. So uh, the kinds of uh, people that were out there that would have been prime for all Japan that he kind of let go to zero one or to new Japan at the time. So uh, in all that, a lot of wrestlers that were backstage said that they love Keiji Muto and they loved him as an opponent and as a person, but he wasn't a great boss. Um, and so that's a point that Monuke Mossman has made was he can't really speak to what Muto was like as a boss. He sort of, he, he loved his, him as an opponent, as a tag partner, as someone to work with, but again, couldn't really say despite working for him for so long, whether or not he was a good, good in that role. So it's a mixed legacy for Muto. And then at one point he kind of uh, failed to respond to the, and this is the biggest mistake he made, failed to respond to that backstage fight. Didn't do anything about it for, uh, I think it was a good two weeks or a window like that. So that ultimately led to him resigning from the company and, the expectation was there that he would eventually return, that he was going to come back and resume being president after a little bit of time in the wilderness. But uh, when Shiraishi kind of installs himself as president in 2013, that's when Muto kind of realizes that he won't be returning. Um, there was some expectation in all of this at some point that Kenneth Kobashi might become the president and or I think that might've been another role that he had. He didn't end up getting it, but we get this idea, right? There's, there's a vacuum and there's chaos. And Shiraishi steps into that. He quickly says things like within five years, all Japan is going to be running at the Tokyo Dome. He said that he fashioned himself after Eric Bischoff and that Eric Bischoff was his idol in wrestling as, and uh, in true to that kind of spirit of Eric Bischoff, he then decides the best way to go about leading all Japan is to pick a fight with new Japan's, head executive at the time. Um, and because I'm on a podcast and because we're recording this, I can't remember the name of New Japan's head executive at the time, but um, you get the idea. He's picking a fight with New Japan um, and getting into a war of words on, on Twitter and trying to kind of create controversy, um, which in the Japanese corporate mindset is not something that you get yourself involved in if you want to be successful. Uh, you, you build relationships. And so Shiraishi was controversial. He was, from the very beginning, trying to create that kind of controversy in head-to-head with New Japan. Muto decides he can't coexist with this and decides that it's time for him to strike out on his own and to take his vision of what pro wrestling is and what it should be to form his own company. And so we get the second split in 13 years uh, for all Japan. I think Muto, and this, this is a point that was made on the Puro in the Rough podcast, uh, was Muto probably overplayed his hand that little bit when he formed Wrestle One. He expected a lot more of the roster to go with him than did. So there's a lot that you could say about this the second split, but Basically, that's how Muto ends up exiting Old Japan. 
It's just so fascinating. And you reminded me, I just finished listening to you again, um, this great podcast from WH Park and Jojo Remy, um, their June Akiyama biography episode from the long and winding Royal road. They talk about this and they talk about Shirashi and his sort of interest in Vince McMahon. And I think modeling himself a little bit after Vince McMahon and you talking about him picking fights with, um, the executive from New Japan at the time on Twitter, that feels like a very Vince McMahon-like thing to do almost, or, or almost like a, a caricature of that, right? So it's interesting to kind of, I guess, reflect on that um, now that you've said it. It was Kidani. The guy that I was trying to think about was Kidani. Really? So, Kidani. Yeah. Interesting. He, okay. So he's still there in New Japan yeah, today, but it's, yeah. So I, yeah, I can't believe I mind blanked on that, but it was something that again you just don't see in Japanese wrestling yeah very much like he was trying to get himself involved in the show in a way that a lot of presidents even presidents who wrestle don't really involve themselves as a president (laughs) like they don't present themselves as that authority figure so that's really interesting and definitely can see how that uh, didn't fly (laughs) and another thing I think happened with at least the booking of burning during this period. And like, like we said before, they had a a hot several months of just like pure success amongst the group of them. And then the booking just starts getting broken up. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on too, but then you start to see, you know, burning start to almost fall apart because Shiazaki ends up leaving to form exceed. And then Aoki leaves burning um, Kotaro leaves burning. And I believe, and Jonathan, maybe you could speak to this as well, that Shirashi had a lot of influence over the specific booking. And I think he wanted to perhaps book All Japan himself. Yeah, that's, I haven't seen that specifically, but that's in keeping with everything else that I've read about him was that that's kind of, if we look at the guys, just the, not the guy's character so much, just the way he acts in, in, uh, being the president, I think that's in keeping with the pattern of behavior there. And look, I, I think that even with, even if he didn't do that, even if he didn't want to get involved in the day-to-day booking, and it's oftentimes better that presidents and that kind of thing don't, but if he didn't get involved, you'd still have these kinds of distractions and the tension of everything that was going backstage at the time that kind of detracts from their ability to get that product and get that over and to sign contracts and all those sorts of things. So I think it's just a huge distraction for the time. Absolutely. And you actually mentioned this to me when you said that you wanted to cover this today. And I've seen this sentiment a lot just over the past like two weeks of me, like really being in burning mode and like sitting with each era of burning and watching a lot of matches and sitting with a lot of fan sentiment. But A very common thing that you'll hear is that with Burning and the rest of the All Japan roster at this time, people will say that All Japan could have competed with and been on the same level of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And when you're keeping in mind where we are with All Japan today, that's a pretty weighty statement. So, um, you know, do you, I guess, agree with that or disagree with the sentiment? You know, I guess, what are your feelings around something like that? So to sum it up, um, my feelings are what could have been here. Um, It was a period of time where you had these incredible talents that were there were making just great matches. You didn't need to give them huge storylines. You 
much like today with all Japan, you, you know, uh, Jesse made this point a couple of weeks ago. There aren't huge stories with all Japan. They kind of have just great matches, right? You could just put these guys on without a huge elaborate story and get them just to create stuff. And they could have just let that play its course that little bit longer. I think, um, I think that we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the storyline was kind of truncated to the point where it's a couple of months of this being great. And then they're splintering off into other factions and there's nothing wrong with that. But in doing that, that early, I think that they cut off some of the moment momentum there in terms of, could they have competed with new Japan? 2013 new Japan was much like it is today, a huge entity in Japanese wrestling. It was the clear established number one and Okada was becoming really huge there at the time. Uh, Shinsuke Nakamura was a huge, like, very much an over talent for them as well. And with these kinds of talents on their roster, you have to think that you need an equally stacked roster, which all Japan had at the time, I think. Um, in terms of competing one-on-one and kind of seeing, you know, I, I couldn't see, say, Shirashi's words coming into effect and then booking out the Tokyo Dome or something ridiculous like that. But I could see them at least being closer or narrowing the gap just that little bit. And I could see them maybe just faring a bit better than they did. I think they got there in the end in that I'm, I'm, I love contemporary new Japan and everything like that. And it's exciting that they're going to run the Budokan and everything that's happening. But I just think they could have made this a lot, if not one and one on the same level of new Japan, at least close that gap that little bit. And I think we could have seen that um, with these guys leading that charge, but you know, it's, we still got uh six months to a year of fantastic wrestling and great stories out of this and everything that followed as well. And at the end of those six months of fantastic matches, um, that leads us to November of 2013, Shiazaki leaves burning to form exceed with Kenso. Uh, he was shortly betrayed by Kenso and he's joined by Atsuhi Aoki, Kotaro Suzuki and Kento Miyahara. So this whole faction sort of built around Shiazaki. Would you say that Shiazaki benefited from being separated from Burning and Akiyama? Did him forming his own stable sort of set him on a path towards stardom or would you say not so much? See, I, I think it helps and it says something and it's a huge statement whenever you have a faction built around a single wrestler. Um, I think that is a huge push for him, but like I said, that six months or however long it was uh, to have him split off already, I think is too soon. You could have had a huge war between all Japan and burning. You could have really pushed that as the main angle for the company as they did for the short term. And that could have been the kind of thing that carried the company on its back for a long time there. Um, You could have taken this all the way toward trying to get a major TV deal or getting more off that than what they, they actually did that bad, bad phrasing there. But the, the idea here is just that you could have made more money from this. And ultimately too, I think that we got great stuff out of it anyway, but I think it's just cutting it too short term to put him there. And Kenso is a wrestler that I have a weird kind of like, he's a, a, a bad favorite or, or whatever he, he's, not a great wrestler, but I still enjoy him for some weird reason anyway. He's a very charismatic guy. Guilty pleasure. He's a guilty pleasure. Thanks. That's what I was thinking. Um, I have plenty. (laughs) 
so uh, he was that right for me but kind of it's a step down surely from burning to go from burning to teaming with kenso um <laughs> it's true <laughs> i mean anything would really be a step down from burning though right ultimately i think exceed was a great stable and yeah. anything that has him teaming with kento and miyahara is just fantastic to kind of look back on and to see his younger kento and this is him striking out on his own and there'll be so much more to say about that but um ultimately i think it was good it just happened too soon that makes a lot of sense yeah and we kind of know how that ended up for him but yeah it's a shame but i guess to kind of back up and take i guess a bigger look at burning I'm interested in what you think are the bigger differences between the original Burning Stable that formed in all Japan in 1998 and Burning when it reforms there in 2013, members aside, because we know there's some member differences. Mm -hmm. Have the ethos of the faction changed by the time they come back to all Japan in 2013? If I had to kind of put one difference between them, you have, I mean, for me, at least, I think the continuity there is you have Akiyama and you have Kenta Kobashi. Kobashi was kind of the spiritual head of Burning, I, I guess, the, the kind of the, their leader, albeit like he appeared and he uh, publicly uh, endorsed them. Um, so you got that continuity there. But apart from that, it's a fairly different kind of presentation, if not ethos, because they're this outsider company and or outsider group. So I tended to think that that's the major difference there is they're presented as they're not here from the company they're here against uh, all japan in one way or another at least in terms of how some of those matches were booked and everything like that so that occurs to me to be the major difference there this is a group of outsiders that is coming in and if you look at the battle library now that all japan have uh on all japan tv and on youtube this match between goshi ozaki and suwama for the Triple Crown is presented as Noah versus All Japan. That's something that they've written that appears on their YouTube video for this. So at least in the in some way, they're alluding to it at the time. And now they just outright say this was Noah versus All Japan. So I think that's a major difference there. It's a group of outsiders at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that each iteration of Burning seems to take on a new theme, especially as we reflect on you know, there's now four different iterations of burning. Would you say that rebirth is a good theme for burning as a whole, especially when we're thinking about how burning showed up in all Japan in 2013 and even, you know, the way that burning looks now um, in DDT for particularly Akiyama, what would your thoughts be around that? So I think in terms of the continuity there, there's still Akiyama and Kobashi as permanent members. And I think the other thing that, that stands out that you always see as far as themes go is, to my mind, this is just the way I view it, um, but maybe this is just my own headcanon, but I always thought the kind of point of burning was this is how Junakiyama and Kenta Kobashi view pro wrestling. This is kind of their idea of what pro wrestling should be that these guys embody, these um, these wrestlers, some of whom Kobashi directly trained and teamed with and they're all kind of wrestling in a way that he, I, I think is his vision of pro wrestling. That's I haven't actually heard him say that though, but this is just what seems to unite these guys. Um, they're all quite different competitors in a lot of ways. If you look at 
their styles and everything like that. But I think that's what they have in common is a kind of particular style, a particular way that they wrestle that they have in common. It's kind of a, a ability to hit hard and to be hit hard and to do that, not because they hate their opponent, but because they expect their opponent to do this, to, to hit them hard and to kind of um, take that to these levels and to fight through that pain. So I think that there's a kind of a, a unique thing with each version of burning um but that's the thing that seems to unite them is this kind of vision that akiyama would have for pro wrestling and that makes a lot of sense and i love that and we'll uh, talk about that sort of building a faction around permanent members and sort of their ideals especially as we start talking about kento uh, but there are some fundamental differences um, in All Japan in general, in the factions of the 80s All Japan, 90s All Japan, and more contemporary factions. Can you maybe talk about these differences compared to the 2013-2015 run of Burning? What made them so different or similar to these earlier factions in All Japan? So if you look at some of the factions in All Japan in the 80s and the 90s, a lot of these are factions where you have permanent roster member or someone who's well-established a veteran leading and a couple of fellow veterans or a few people that haven't been wrestling for quite as long as that but they are very much in a stable a kind of similar to uh what you see in sumo wrestling you'll have some trainees so you have the the kohai and the senpai you have the less trained less experienced wrestlers in there with their more experienced trainers so uh if you think about some of the older factions there, like Sarutagun, you see Jumbo Saruta's there at the center of this, and he's kind of the guy that is uh, training all the others, and the others are kind of getting that experience from him. Um, do you see that a little bit with Burning in the presence of Akiyama, uh, Kenta Kobashi kind of being the, the spiritual head of the whole thing, and then um, these other less experienced wrestlers working with them? But for the most part, I, I think that's the difference there is that it's a less formal kind of grouping it's these guys are a little bit more on the same level as one another. They're all just kind of there in support of Kenta Kabashi. And like I said before, they're kind of the outside version of the stable, the, the stable that's sort of invading. How do you think we sort of got away from that sumo stable, as you were talking style of faction, how has the culture of factions in all Japan sort of shifted over the, over time? We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we get more into the contemporary stuff, but still you can already in this 2013 era already see how it's been changing. Is it maybe that there are fewer kind of established veterans that have been there forever? Or is it maybe that you see, I guess, fewer kind of players that are there with their trainees as part of that same faction. That's kind of, to me, is probably the major difference. You don't see any kind of, outside of Aoki, who was trained up in Noah and uh, Suzuki, obviously, um, you don't see too many sort of younger trainees in these stables. Maybe that's it to me, or it might just simply be that it's a less formalized way of doing factions that makes its way in after you know, with all the tropes that 80s and 90s old Japan had, a lot of these sort of change over time. Maybe that's just one of those things that evolves um, with it. Yeah, because even now we do have some veterans in all Japan and, you know, you have Suwama with evolution sort of as the head of his own 
faction, but then you have people like Takao Mori, who's not really, you know, leading that sort of charge in the way that he might have if they kept to the same sort of, um, completely lost my words. Oh, uh, but I mean, structure. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they kept to the same structure. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, if you if you look at it, um, Suwama holds tag titles with someone who's not even in his faction um, in Ashino. Ashino is not really part of a faction either. He was. That's not something that would ever happen in 80s or 90s all Japan. You had your faction, you stuck with them, you teamed with them, and that was it. So you didn't have this kind of cross-faction teaming and that kind of stuff. So I, I guess it's just a less formal way of using that all Japan formula. What are some standout matches from the 2013-2015 run of burning singles and tags? What are some of your favorites that you'd recommend to people who are looking to get into burning from this time period? So as you guys mentioned on your second podcast, when Goshi Ozaki was in all Japan, he was actually kind of down, kind of depressed, but you just can't see that in his work. It just doesn't come across that this man is not happy because he had some absolute amazing matches. So he had one that I, I recommend off the top <clears throat> top of the bat there is um has got to be uh Goshi Ozaki against Joe Doring for the Triple Crown. That was a match where I can't even remember what event this is, but if you look for Triple Crown, Goshi Ozaki versus Joe Doring, it even though like Go is not, not a small man, um this is still the big man versus bigger man i guess sort of formula of all japan and you see him kind of go into some of those moves that he takes from kenna kobashi you see different bits and pieces from misawa there from the moves that he uses and it's just the story of him trying to take down this giant in joe doring who is this kind of um dominant big man in this match and the kind of classic gaijin heel versus japanese face and the crowd go ballistic particularly toward the end of this match um that's my first one off the top of my head the other one is the champion carnival final from 2014 where junaki goes up against kai um that was just another great hard hitting match someone else who you look at he's doing fantastically in dragon gate now but you look at kai in all japan and just think um, what could have happened um, with him? He's another great talent who just very much brings it in this match. And um, apart from that, there's a great all Asia tag team title match with the junior stars. I think it is against burning. You can see some great tag matches from this period of time as well. Um, so there's a couple of all Asian tag team title matches. There's a couple of great, uh, matches with uh, Jun Akiyama and Goshi Ozaki in the tag picture as well that are worth checking out. Um, you could probably spend a day just talking about the great matches as well that they had in this time, um, which the, uh, to me, that's what sticks out. Yeah. And speaking of Joe Doring, he a lot, like, like you said, like he's really playing just like the big bad Gaijin. And he reminds me so much in a lot of these exchanges of Stan Hansen. It's such an easy connection to make, but the, I think the parallels are still there. I saw a lot when I was watching Suwama and Joe Doring versus Goshiyazaki and Suwama for the, the heavyweight tags. And that match is, is awesome. It's brutal. It's like 30 minutes of them just like beating the shit out of each other, but it's incredible. And there's so many moments like Shiyazaki has this, this part where he's just like, they keep throwing him off of the apron and, um, 
he eventually has to have this comeback. And Joe is like every bit of Stan Hansen. And Shiyazaki just feels like a young Kenta Kobashi to me in some of those moments where like the crowd is rallying behind him getting his comeback. And like those, those matches for those moments are incredibly special. And there's a moment where he, Go Shiyazaki puts uh, Joe on the top rope and I just think he's going to hit the burning hammer right here. He's having to go into that kind of mode that Kenta Kobashi had to go into where he had to hit someone with the burning hammer to finish. He doesn't actually do that though. He has his own move and his own spin on that. And I don't want to spoil too much or give too much about the match. I almost stopped here. you. I was like, no, no, no. I'm going to go watch that match right after. Don't spoil it. <laughs> There's a whole lot more to it that I won't say because okay, I don't it's okay. spoil it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you definitely sold me on those matches because I really am just pulling them up right now as we speak. I'm very excited to watch them after the uh, recording. I was also like, I revisited um, when Akiyama won the champion carnival. And there's like that moment at the end where he's like, you know, fervently waving um, the rest of the burning into the ring with him. And they all get in the ring with him and they, they stand around him in the trophy and they take the pictures, you know, at the at ringside. And it's, you know, it's incredibly sad that their time was so limited. Cause like it really, like at that point, it feels kind of like, they were a bit unstoppable. Like they, you know, they were, they were doing so incredibly well and the matches were incredible. And there just seemed like there was so much momentum behind them to do more and to, there were just so many possibilities as Jonathan was saying before, but it's still so worth it to, to get into this era of all Japan because burning are great. And it's not just burning. I mean, like the roster then was so strong. There's just a lot of great matches in this era of all Japan that are worth checking out when, um, you know, if you can get the, get the right links on the internet so to speak <laughs> and that moment with jun akiyama is such an uncle jun kind of moment with him asking his i don't know his nephews or his sons or whatever to come join him for a nice photo at the end <laughs> Many nephews. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Very, yeah, uh... such a such a great uncle uncle jun moment and yeah it's just nice that um from because so much happens jonathan and maybe you could speak a little bit to this too but their exit, everyone's exit from all Japan, you know, in the end is, is not very smooth either. Do you want to maybe say Jonathan, how, how everyone's time in, in burning and then in all Japan kind of comes to an end. So um, eventually you see it happen that um, Kotaro Suzuki goes freelance again and makes his way back to Noah. Um, the same thing is true though. Suzuki remained a freelancer and had another short run in all Japan in 2018, 2019. So I got to see him at an all Japan show in 2019. Um, so he's doing awesome. some junior heavyweight stuff there with Tajiri. Um, so he, he kind of made his way back a little bit. Um, wasn't gone entirely, but he went freelance. He's mostly involved now in Noah. I think, I don't think he's got a Noah contract, but no, he's on pretty much Still pretty much exclusive there. Um, very much the feature player there. Shizaki went freelance as well and uh, basically didn't return to all Japan, but to new uh, to, to Noah, where he had that fantastic storyline. If you haven't yet heard, uh, check out episode two of this very podcast because <laughs> it was covered off so well there. Um, in terms of Free the storyline. <laughs> 
it's a it's a free plug for the podcast people are already kind of listening to but we still appreciate it yes thank you it's um it's that old academic thing where you reference yourself in the in the um in the citations but basically um Shiozaki makes his way back to Noah and there's a big storyline about him being the guy who left and having to earn the roster's trust back again and everything that comes out of that um eventually uh so there are um let's see uh oh the hard thing about this of course is trying to um remember each and every member there's so many of them but um Kanemaru makes his way back to Noah and then uh defects to Suzuki-gun during the Suzuki-gun invasion in 2016. And then when Suzuki-gun leaves Noah to return to New Japan, he goes with them and becomes part of the New Japan roster where he's nowadays a producer and an agent for New Japan as well as wrestling with Suzuki-gun still. Um, One of the most underrated junior heavyweights and someone who still has a lot to give wrestling um, in setting out finishes to matches and that, that kind of stuff. So uh, as well as that, uh, Aoki remained with All Japan for the rest of his career. Um, that became a big part of what he did. He trained a lot of the younger wrestlers. So a lot of the great wrestlers that we can see on All Japan's current roster um, are there because of him. And he also had a hand in booking and was the kind of uh, ace of the junior heavyweight division until he passed away in 2019 in a motorcycle accident. Uh, all Japan made the decision to keep the title on him after his death for the maximum period of six months uh, until the titles declared vacant. And we had that great uh, mini tournament for a new title. So his uh, family nowadays have the traditional junior heavyweight title um, that they had. So uh, his death was also part of, I think, the catalyst for what would eventually be Junakiyama leaving uh, All Japan in 2020 uh if i've got the timing correct on that um that was one factor among a few things as to why june left but i think that the major reason that i'd say that burning led to the survival of all japan was all japan went broke at the end of all of this at all of this stuff that happened with shiraishi eventually shiraishi and partners withdraw from all japan and Jun Akiyama becomes the head of the new company. He sets up a company under a new name and transfers over all the IP and all of as many of the wrestlers that he can to set up this kind of super indie that we have today with the contemporary old Japan. So um, he was running things for a long time there as company president. And that was a very tough job, but he's kind of responsible, I think, for a lot of the shape that we have and, and didn't always get credit for keeping all Japan alive. So that's why I think the burning angle leads to all Japan surviving uh, a very tumultuous time. Um, I think he established a lot of building blocks for where the company is today. And I think without this mass defection, I don't think you have Akiyama there um, in all Japan. And then you don't have him essentially being one of these people that have helped save it over that time. So uh, definitely someone who is important to the history of all Japan. Uh, He left, to go to DDT, I think in part because of contract issues and internal politics that the picture gets murky with all Japan, but some of the internal politics there um, lead to him going to DDT. They leased the remainder of his contract to DDT. Um, Cyber agent picks up that, then it runs out and cyber agent officially signs him 
in 2021 after the fantastic event that he participated in at the Budokan. So um, again, we've seen a little bit here. It's his 30th anniversary and Takao Imori uh, made his way over to DDT for that match. So if in his 30th anniversary, he said he wants there to be uh, as much as he can, his past, his present, his future. He wants as many companies involved with his 30th anniversary as he can get. I do hope that we see him there. If nothing else at the Budokan for all Japan's 50th anniversary show. Um, he's someone who, despite all the acrimony and the politics, and uh, he made sure he threw a couple of grenades on his way out of the company. I still hope that there's something left for him to do. And we haven't seen the last of Jun Akiyama in all Japan because he's way too important to the history of that company. Yeah. Impossible to not agree with that. Yeah. He's a force to be reckoned with. That is absolutely for sure. Wrapping things up here before we seg into talking a little bit more about Kento Miyahara and next stream, I wanted to address what you believed. And we talked a lot about uh, the legacy and the members of burning the third incarnation of burning, but what do you see as the legacy of burning as a faction itself in all Japan, particularly now that we're watching this fourth incarnation launch under Kobashi and Akiyama in an entirely different company in DDT. It's so hard because there's so many different things that they lead to. I think one of the major things is what we're going to be talking about next and what Jesse's focused on. But in that you have um, Shiozaki is there. Shiozaki comes with burning from Noah into all Japan. He signs a contract eventually. And then he starts his own faction and young Kento Miyahara is one of the people that teams with him and the XC tag team did fantastic stuff. They were a great tag team. I think that this is key to Miyahara's formation. And I think that this is part of what makes him the pro wrestler he is today and a future ace in the company. So I think that's one of the direct legacy moments there is that he gets to team with Shirozaki and he gets to kind of get that experience there. Um, I think that helps him a lot with learning how to conduct himself as the ace of the company. So I think that's one direct line there. Um, the company's survival under Akiyama. And I think the, uh, in general here, we just simply have uh, this stable that is such a moment in time that I, I hope that we get to at least see these guys back. I would have loved to have seen them at that show that we recently had instead of the Voodoo Murderers. But I think if we could get them back <laughs> for that Budokan show, that would be fantastic. Sorry, I'm looking at Jesse. Jesse was laughing. <laughs> was just like, yeah. Such a wild, wild ma- match and everything like that. But also a thing of what is going on here exactly. And uh, just if you're going to invite five people back, I could name you know uh, quite a few other people to invite back ahead of those guys but that's just me um definitely one of those great factions that uh we can look back on and if nothing else just enjoy uh this period in time and wonder what could have been so going from jonathan's incredible thoughts about burning we kind of touched on the formation of exceed and kento miyahara almost serves as a great link between our topics today because he was a part of exceed when it formed and he was actually heavyweight tag champion with shiazaki before shiazaki left all japan in september 2015 forcing them to vacate the titles so jesse can you tell us a little bit about kento's journey through factions in all japan and how he wound up in next dream sure so even before he joined all japan i'll take you back 
even further. He was part of the Diamond Ring slash Kensuke office, which is where he started his career all the way back in 2008. From there, he broke off and joined Voodoo Murders, which I actually had no idea until I started researching this. In 2013, he started with All Japan and Voodoo Murders announced that Kento was done. He's leaving the group. He started a team with Go Shiozaki in November 2013, and that led to the formation of Exceed with Asushi, Aoki, and Kotaro Suzuki. They won the World Tag Team Championships, but they were forced to vacate. As we mentioned before, Shiozaki did leave the company. Suzuki left soon after, and in September 2015, Exceed was over. He was offered a place in Evolution by Suwama, but declined. Kento and Suwama did actually win World Tag League, in 2015 together but instead in December 2015 alongside Jake Lee and Keiichi Sato they soon formed Next Dream. They were soon joined by Nomura and Yuma Ayagi. Jake and Nomura left leaving just Yuma and Kento. Yuma did betray Kento in 2020 which ended the faction but in November they reunited and alongside Yuma's younger brother Atsuki and Rising Haito we have the current Next Dream. So we mentioned a little bit earlier with Jonathan that uh, Kento's time in Exceed served as a launching pad for that whole journey and that wave of success. How would you say that sort of happened? So Kento did have his first taste of All Japan Champion success as part of Exceed within the All Asia Tag Team Championships with Suzuki and the World Tag Team Championship with uh, Shiozaki. Seeing he won the Triple Crown Champion and had a U-plus reign very quickly after Next Dream was formed, you could say Exceed was his launching pad. Exceed could have been his feeling out stage, seeing how the fans reacted and how he carried himself as champion. And would you say that Next Dream was formed as a way to continue where Exceed left off? Or do you feel like the generational change that Kento was looking for was different than the change he was looking for when he joined Exceed? I believe it was different. Exceed really wanted to surpass everybody, while an extreme wanted a generational change. They were very young and somewhat experienced group compared to Exceed. Back then, you would have no thoughts that Jake Lee or Sato and later on Ayagi and Nomura were ready to surpass anybody, but they were ready to show that they were the future and they were the next main event. It's what All Japan needed. Do you view Kento as the leader of Next Dream? Do both iterations of the faction that we were talking about feel like they're his, or would you say they've sort of shifted through time? In the first version of Next Dream, which I'll call Next Dream 1.0, just to make it easier, <laughs> um, he was definitely the leader. There was no doubt in my mind that he was a leader. He was starting his Triple Crown reigns, and it will be hard to argue that the Triple Crown champion isn't the leader of the faction. For 2.0, Kento was still the leader to start with, but as time moved on and Yuma kind of moved up the card a bit and just got more eyes on him and people was like, okay, this guy's a new Triple Crown champion. He's going to be the ace one day. It kind of shifted. It isn't a 50-50 split in leadership, but the way Yuma is moving up the ranks, it soon could be. And even Yuma could maybe one day take over, but I don't really want that to happen, but we'll see. (laughs) You don't? No, I like Kento and Yuma together. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Um, So I guess uh, my next sort of question is a theoretical that might be a little (laughs) painful then. (laughs) But uh, if Next Dream were to fall apart again and Kento were to go off and create a new faction, 
do you think it would just be called next dream would it be a third iteration of next dream or do you think he'd go in a different direction sort of uh change the ethos of the faction so next dream's real goal was to create a generational change so for me i think it depends on who is still in the faction or who joins the faction Kento isn't as young as he was when he started. So if Next Dream were to disband again, I definitely could see him creating a new faction. But then again, he could see Next Dream as his work, like as his baby, like this is where he had all his success. So I don't know if, if he'd want to give it up, but we'll see. Well, hopefully we don't see actually. <laughs> <laughs> In that way, it sort of does remind me of uh, burning, like we were talking about with John where there is that feeling of it being centered around Kobashi even long after Kobashi is retired and then Akiyama of course as well where it's sort of Kobashi's baby where there's something where you can't really separate it from him so it's interesting to think about that eventually happening with Kento but I suppose we will see or we hopefully won't see. And Jesse, you've spoken about both Jake and Yuma at length in their relation to Kento. Both of them have left Nextstream in order to find success for themselves away from him. Yuma, of course, came back to Nextstream, but that betrayal really sparked a new stage in his career. Would it be fair to say that leaving Nextstream helps push forward that generational change as much as being in the unit itself? I say yes and no. For Yuma, it's a no, but that's not his fault. His split came at the beginning of 2020, and you know that's when like the world kind of stopped everything. And the plans for the Champion Carnival and Royal Road were scrapped. Champion Carnival obviously happened later in the year, but Royal Road was gone. Um, we don't know how much he'd move up the card or how much um, wins he'll get, how much losses he would get, who he would team with. Would he just go straight back to Kento after... Um, I lend him for the Triple Crown. We just don't know. He did start to show he was a real contender for the Triple Crown and the main event spot for All Japan after Next Dream got back together. So him being in Next Dream is good for him. For Jake, yes, but it took a while for him to be on top. He was always popular and getting main event spots and title opportunities, but nothing really came out of it. He was always um, losing title opportunities. People were like hoping, like, Please let Jake Lee win the Triple Crown, but it just never came. Um, his new faction, Sweeper, had the goal of sweeping all Japan's titles. They did find some success, but most importantly, the top title, they couldn't capture that. His next faction, Jin, had so much potential. I just wanted them to succeed so much. I just loved every single member in it. Mm-hmm. But of course, due to Nomura's neck injury and pandemic, that was done basically. It's only when he started his new faction, Total Eclipse, is when he really became the generational change Next Dream wanted. He won the Champion Carnival and Triple Crown Championship at Champions Night 1. So for a relatively small roster that runs very few big angles, which we've talked about, All Japan has a number of active factions. What role do you think factions serve in the current climate of the promotion. And Jonathan, you can answer this too, because we were talking about, you know, the way that uh, the culture of factions has changed. Would you say that the factions these days are functional in terms of moving a story, or would you say they're more kind of decorational? I think the idea behind the factions is hopefully to kind of give uh, people something to kind of hang their hat on in terms of who each wrestler is and kind of 
how do we think about them? So for instance, uh, Jake Lee joining the, at the time it was the Enfants, they became the Total Eclipse faction. Um, that was a moment where that signifies Jake's turning heel. That signifies the Enfants turning on their former leader. So it kind of helps you have a nice face heel alignment, I think is probably the way that all Japan tends to use the factions now. And it kind of helps to position someone with a gimmick as far as that kind of goes. Um, beyond that, I think um, some of the factions, they could stand to kind of push that a little bit further as far as factional warfare goes, because you could definitely do things in terms of the sets up that they have in some of these groups that I'd, I'd like to see some more factional warfare between say the likes of evolution. I know it's a small group nowadays, but evolution and total eclipse or, to see uh, next stream and total eclipse kind of go at it a, a little bit more in terms of um, generally speaking factions should be there for setting up tag matches and these kinds of things to help those storylines move along. But um, the, the way I see it anyway, in contemporary old Japan is it helps you with the dynamics, it helps you with the, the alignments and things like that, but they use that more of a tool that they're hopeful to, they can use or ignore however they want to, uh, they can team people up with other people that, it's not a thing that they're too rigid on. They kind of use it to help those stories, if you like. Um, that's at least how I view it. Am I alone in this in my all Japan brain or is this kind of the way it is now? No, I agree with you 100%. Um, basically, the factions in all Japan same, serve the same purpose as other companies, but all Japan is kind of more basic. They're not as flashy. They don't have a lot of storylines or interaction fighting. Like, there's nothing crazy, like, no offense, Alicia and Rachel, like, Noah, and people changing factions, like, every week. It's, it didn't used to be like this. It's uh, one of those things that a lot of people who are big Noah fans would say that about the juniors division as well, that you see so much interfactional warfare and so many people switching every other week. Um, that was confined to the junior tag division until very recently. But, yeah, it's uh, the... Uh, you don't see the same level of chaos, at least not yet, in all Japan. Yeah, so the factions are definitely a vital part of all Japan, but it's not 100% necessary for every wrestler to be in a faction. I would like them to, but, you know, there's people that kind of slip through the cracks, like Suji, who just had a match at Champion Night 3. He's only in a faction, but he still had Black Menso Ri in his corner. So why don't they team up together bring in Omori, bring in everybody else who's not in a faction and make that a new faction because Purple Haze kind of disbanded. There's no official word, but with Zeus gone, it's kind of done. So there really needs to be another faction to take their place. And I don't understand why they don't have Suji as a leader of his own faction. I would completely support Ishikawa-gun as a faction. Like, let this man, after that match that he had... Mm. The other night, let the, give this man everything he wants. In fact, he's the booker, so he can set it for himself. <laughs> Maybe that's why he hasn't done that yet. But I agree. The the minute you said it, I still haven't watched that match. But uh, Ishikawa and uh, Mensure alone has me sold. I'm here for that. I, I think another important thing about the at least and Jesse, you could probably speak to this too. But it seems like the the factions are really really important for the purpose of pushing merch. I feel like they are just selling more faction-based merch than ever. Um, there's so much next stream merch in particular. Um, <laughs> so I feel like they've finally figured out that they can just make an obscene amount of money probably on merchandise if they really 
just push out all these like towels and shirts and all this other themed stuff around the factions. Yeah, I got so much All Japan merch. I have a Nectarine towel. Um, <laughs> it's just crazy just how popular, like you see, you know, the camera shots of the audience and like every second person has a towel and it's either someone from Nextreme or like a random Jake or Suwama somewhere. It's just crazy <laughs> how popular they are. So yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, you said it well. They uh, Factions in All Japan are functional. They do what a faction should do. That's makes perfect sense to me. Uh, let's go back just a little bit. Speaking of recent shows, uh, let's think back to the recent March 12th show where we had two major faction-based angles sort of retconned. We have uh, Yoshitatsu Kingdom effectively reforming at the end of the Yoshitatsu and Cosma match. And then we also have Dan being kicked from Evolution only to rejoin after his match. How do you feel these stories sort of echo that culture that we talked about, the way that AJPW books its factions? Well, these two examples are unique in their own way. The booking of Next Dream, Total Eclipse, and even Purple Haze when they were a thing, it was kind of, for lack of a better word, normal. Like people fight over belts, people, you know, just have feuds. So you actually get to Kingdom, a lot of people said this on Twitter. He kind of keeps in his own bubble in the old Japan world, I guess. He has his own thing going that doesn't really bleed into other storylines of old Japan, and he does his own thing. So with Yoshichatsu Kingdom, I don't know. I just, at the end of the day, I just throw my hands up and just say, like, whatever. He does his thing. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter when it comes to, like, the big moments, but he's there. He does what he wants. It's very well said. <laughs> very, very well said. Um, for Evolution, I'll just give a little back backstory for this. So Dan Tomorrow was tagging with his friend Kobayashi from Big Japan. Suama, who leads Evolution, didn't really like that. He kicked Dan out. Dan was supposed to challenge for the All Asia tag belts, but Kobayashi was a close contact, so he couldn't compete. Dan was trying to find an opponent. He even asked Suama on Twitter, um, can you be my opponent? And so I was like, no, just give up on this title match. You know, it's pointless. It was really mean, actually. <laughs> um, Swama so did surprise everybody, including myself. He did take Kobayashi's place and tag with Dan. They did lose the match, but after Swama so apologized, saying he's sorry and he still has a place in Evolution if he wanted, Dan accepts. We would never know what really the storyline was supposed to be since Kobayashi couldn't make it. I can't see Dan in any other faction except for Evolution right now, but we did get Kobayashi and Dan tagging at uh, Champions Night 3, and Suama hasn't kicked up a fuss about it yet, so I think he's kind of cool with them tagging now. Yeah, I did I did see you gif that moment on Twitter, and that was very, very <laughs> oh sweet. As soon as I, I saw it. that, yeah, <laughs> as soon as I saw that happen, I just thought of the people in this podcast. I'm like, someone is going to react to that. And then it's a matter <laughs> of who and when. All of us, actually. We do love a story about a grumpy dad being forced <laughs> to uh, let his son make his own choices. We do like that in our wrestling. That's, that's a very classic, yeah. A classic what was, Yeah. What was great about that, though, was those two storylines that you saw there, the, um, the Yoshitatsu Yoshitatsu world or however we whatever that one's called and 
the evolution storyline is they're not typical pro wrestling storylines in how they play out. There wasn't a single mm-hmm. match to decide anything. It was people are forgiven and people go back into the fold. It's not meant to happen that way. Yeah, I was super interested in what would happen with evolution since Dan Going leaves evolution with two people, Sato and Suama. So I'd really like to know what the real outcome for that was supposed to be, but I guess we'll just never know now. Yeah, and I actually really, I like that outcome. It felt natural to me, even though, you know, it obviously wasn't entirely the original plan, but uh, I ended up thinking that that really did play out pretty well. So uh, that sort of leads me into my next question as far as uh, things playing out. When Yuma betrayed Kento uh, to end Next Dream 1.0, he eventually reunites with him in the exact same year. Do you feel that has... um, sort of a natural booking storytelling or does it feel a little more retconned as it were uh so not really with Yuma betraying Kento it wasn't for some silly reason like they just didn't like each other anymore Kento was the triple crown champion and that's what Yuma wanted he wanted to become champion it was easy to catch Kento when he was off guard and he's you know guard was down basically you know he German suplexed Kento right in the middle of the ring when he was putting on the belt and now that Kento is a champion, anytime someone comes in to put on the belt, I'm just like, they're going to German suplex him again. It doesn't matter if it's a wrestler or just like the referee. I'm like, someone's going to portray Kento again. <laughs> Wada. <laughs> Wada comes in with the German. It's been you a long time. You can't say that that would be a surprise. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. But it would be great. Wada's revenge. What that would be. Yeah. yeah, so this was a real opportunity for Yuma to finally break out of Kento's shadow and like stopping his psychic being his own man and this was really the way to do it when they did reunite Yuma is the one that actually went to Kento Kento didn't you know ask Yuma to join back up Yuma is the one that came out from the back he picked him up off the ground after Kento lost the champion carnival finals he helped him to the back um maybe he needed Kento and saw that they were actually a good team you know looking at it now I can't see uh, Next Dream in any other way without Kento and Yuma. But saying this, it did all happen in 2020. All Japan could have had other plans with the two, but um, putting them back together is the right decision for me. And I think they make a wonderful team. And seeing their 2021 uh, tag team reign, I don't think many people can argue that they make a good team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're one of my favorite parts of contemporary All Japan, that's for sure. And with this next question, I would love to get your opinion, Jesse, and also yours as well, Jonathan. But how does Nextstream rank amongst the top factions in All Japan history? Have Nextstream made their mark yet? Well, I'm definitely not as knowledgeable about Jonathan about past All Japan, but I would say they definitely have made their mark. They have the ace of the company team with three wrestlers who are going to be integral to the company's future. Yuma could definitely overtake Kento one day as the ace, while Asuki and Hayato are poised to be the future of the junior division with Asuki. I would bet all my money on him becoming the junior ace. They've won champion carnival, world road tournament, world tag league twice now. They've held the triple crown championship, world tag team championships, and all Asia titles. The only thing they're really lacking is in the junior division. But seeing who they have for juniors, Asuki and Haito, it's a sure thing. They'll get the belt. They'll get the junior tag battle of glory. They'll get there easily. Yeah, I think Jesse summed it up nicely there. Um, it's, I've, like I said before, the thing I liked about Burning was Burning had 
people that you could slot into any division at any time, at any place on the card, and they would do well. I think you just say the same thing about Next Dream, that these are guys that you could just about um, move Kento down to the mid card for a while and put him back up to the main event to remind everyone of how good he is as all Japan has done. And the same could be said about Yuma. Um, I think that it's going to be interesting to see how they book it long-term once Yuma gets the belt. Um, And I think that that's more than likely going to happen in the Budokan. But if not then, then I don't know quite what all Japan have in mind, but it's one of those factions that, I think that you could just say that if they are given the time, if they're given the resources, we'll remember in the same kind of way that you remember the older factions in old Japan. So you guys have already given me a lot to watch after uh, we record, but let's, let's do a little bit more. What are some standout matches that people should view if they want to get into next stream? I kind of sticked with tags and not singles, but if you want singles, you should watch basically nearly all of Kenzo's uh, Triple Crown matches, especially his 500-day-plus reign. Yuma and Ashino matches, they're always good to watch. But um, one single match I did put down is kind of cheating a little bit. It's Aski versus Haito. This is when they weren't part of Next Dream, but this is the match that they got offered the position to be in Next Dream. Next, Dream Power Series 2021, the Next Dream special where the audience chose the main event. They picked Kento and Haito to team together to face Human Aski. This was nothing crazy, but it was just a fun match. It was a fun show, you know, just like silly. Real World Tag League 2019, Kento and Yuma versus Jake and Nomura, basically the former Next Dream members versus current Next Dream members. News Wars Day 1, Kento versus Yuma versus Suwama and Suji Ishikawa. That's like the match where Yuma really stepped up and people really took notice and say, yeah, this guy is Triple Crown material. And also the Real World Tag League Finals 2020 and 2021, they were both great. Next Dream versus Jake and Koji and then Next Dream versus Total Eclipse, they both knocked it out of the park in those matches. Jonathan, do you have any to add by chance? Those are all great. Um, the only other thing I could add, the only one match is from the 9th of March, 2019, uh, Kento Miyahara versus Nomura. I, I've said this way too many times on the podcast already, but when you think about what could have been um, and what we lost in terms of Nomura no longer being with All Japan, um, this is just one of the great matches that he had. And that's someone else that was a uh, part of things as far as the storylines at least go with next stream as a faction and people turning on kento and people having matches with him so that's just another great one between those two guys yeah i was gonna say it's a definite watch that's one of the first matches i watched when i started watching all japan and actually jesse we've talked about this on talking triple crown lately but for a note to end on give us your predictions for next stream for this year are we headed toward another yuma betrayal or do you see things ending up differently for the faction I'm really hoping it doesn't end in another portrayal. It would honestly break my heart. I was so happy when Yuma portrayed him the first time. I was like, finally, like this is Yuma's time. But if now if he does it, it would break my heart. If he does portray him, it'll be a completely different Yuma to the one that portrayed him back in 2020. He wasn't ready to lead or become a champion, but now he is. So if he does break out, I do see him, you know, becoming champion. And like this will be his major step, kind of like Jake did when he betrayed Koji. That was his major step to become Triple Crown champion. With Champion Carnival coming up 
and Numa being one of the favourites, we don't know how this will affect the group. I don't believe they will split, but Kento does have a big ego. And if he does lose to Yuma in a match, like who knows if this will be the tipping point because Kento has never lost to Yuma. So who knows what it's going to be like when he finally does lose. And then what about the juniors? Do you foresee them gaining their goal of getting some junior gold this year? Asuki has already made it clear that he does want the junior heavyweight belt. And being that this is All Japan's 50th year, I believe he will achieve his goal. If he does win the junior battle of glory to gain the opportunity, I do think that's definitely he's going to win the belt. There's no way he's going to lose after that. And Jonathan, do you have anything that you would like to add in terms of predictions for next stream this year? I really loved that moment a couple of years back. Uh, not a couple of years back. It's actually last year. Sorry. When um, we saw the kind of the title challenge where first you had them going for the tag belts. And then the next night you had that great match for the triple crown, um, the way they split up the shows on the 2nd and 3rd of January. And we just got that great kind of moment there where uh, basically Kanto held the ropes open for his tag partner. You know, that was one of these, what's going on here? This this is not Kento. This is not how he tends to act. So the, the whole storyline there, I would love to see this kind of tension between, you know, Jesse said it best that Kento's got a big ego, this kind of tension in him. Is he going to be the one that can't put aside his own ego, who can't be happy for his friend who is now going to be on level kind of with him? Or is it going to be the kind of story where he will be the one to pull the trigger and he'll be the one to turn on Yuma? Um play up the tension between them all the way into and out of the Budokan, but I'd love to see them still stay together as a faction and see what that looks like for Kento, where he finds himself in all Japan's booking um, and where he finds himself in the picture there. Like maybe give him a new tag partner after that to go back after those tag titles, keep him out of the title picture or put him in something else. But definitely it's a faction that would still have legs to my mind after this storyline runs its course and, whatever happens, the Budokan and we're all assuming here, it's going to be in the Budokan as well. And there's that little bit where you don't know, and it's hard to predict, but to me, if you're not going to put him over and it's not going to be there, then where and when, you know? So I think that's, that's the best place for them to make a big statement about their history and about their future and to put the, the belt there um, on someone new. So that's where I, I hope all this is headed. And I hope that we get to keep next stream after all is said and done. Next Dream could survive for many years to come if it sticks to the original idea. Create a generational change. They could recruit someone they believe would carry on the original goals. Take the rookie Rio Inoue, for example. He's still in the rookie stage and only just started his wrestling career in January, but he could be a potential member for the next generation. And I love that. And I'm absolutely really excited for what is to come especially in the factions of all Japan. And thank you guys for sharing some of the past history of the factions of all Japan as well. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for having me back. Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are so grateful for all of your constant support and enthusiasm. And as always, please don't forget to subscribe to or follow us on Apple or Spotify so that you get our episodes first when they drop. Subscribing to us and giving us a review or rating on your preferred platform really helps us as we try to grow Kickout. So please help us out by doing that. And we are very close to announcing another giveaway to get us over our next followers milestone. So keep an eye out for that as well.
And you can always find us on Twitter at kickout299. You can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y star. And you can find Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. You can check out our blog at kickout299.wordpress.com. We have lots of things up there right now. We have several articles, some reviews, all kinds of different things. Make sure you keep an eye on that. If you would like to submit questions and feedback that we may read on the next podcast, or if you'd like to submit a pitch for the blogger podcast, please email us at kickoutat299 at gmail.com. Next up is our 10th episode, which we are both so excited for as we talk about Jumbo Suruta's life and his legacy in modern Puroresu. We also have another Factions episode, just like this one, coming up, this time with NJPW. And as always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for upcoming episodes and projects. Thank you all so much once again, and we will talk to you soon.